Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Oi, you with the glasses on. You have glasses. I know, but you've got big glasses and I'm looking at you. What's up? And what's up with your bad self? All right. You did that last week, the bad self thing. If, has, has, this, has somebody said this to you recently? Bad no, self. There is a song. There's like a 70s. Get, which, which is Get On Up With Your Bad Self. No, or something. Yeah, get Down With Your Get bad Down self. With Your Bad Self. Get Up With Your Bad Self was the sequel. I'm somebody, not, I saw, I, I, that sounds actually not, not medically desirable. <laughs> Getting down with my bad self. Somebody okay? was complaining on the internet the other day. No. No, I know. No, really? Yeah. They said, the problem with the, with the podcast extras for this, um, for this programme is she said it's just become exclusively about obscure 70s music. There is an element of truth I know, to I, that. I feel as though you've led the way, specifically. <laughs> I said, that wasn't me who said, get down with your bad... Who was, oh, who was get down with your I bad... I don't know, uh, but our team are currently... Or, Working on that, but if we're speaking of obscure seventies, I don't know if we've mentioned the soundtrack. I never saw the movie that summer, but the soundtrack to that summer, summer yeah. which I had on transparent yellow vinyl, really was, and I think I probably still got it somewhere. Ian Dury, Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Yeah, isn't Ray Winston in that summer? I'm just, I don't know, I haven't seen it. I am pretty sure that Ray, yeah, Ray Winston is in it. That's there right. In fact, it was one of his very. Very, very early starring roles. I did an onstage with Ray Winston at the Bradford... Um... Oi, shut it. <laughs> You're in my chair. <laughs> there was a lovely moment. We showed a clip from, from that summer. That's why I'm remembering it. And there was a lovely moment. Did you ever see um, Sexy Beast? Uh, I don't know. The one with him and Ben King. That's the one where he has the yellow trunks. Exactly so. Mm-hmm. Exactly so. And uh, I said to him, uh, do you still have the yellow trunks? And he went, I do. And I said, do you ever, you know, wear them around the house, you know, recreationally? And did he say five to one? Put it this way. He, on he didn't say no. He didn't say no. When asked to, he might do it. Might. But if we're talking obscure 70s music, Richard Hell and the Voidoids. That's been. not obscure, Richard Hell and the Voidoids. I think it is. Really? Blank Generation? That's yes. not obscure. I think it is definitely I've got a 12-inch single of Blank Generation. Which when you, when you take it, anything. When you take out the inner sleeve, Richard Hell's got his eyes... He hasn't got any any, any art because he's blank. Well, I think they took that from Gary Gilmore's Eyes by the Adverse. No, I think Blank Generation was before Gary Gilmore's Eyes by the Adverse. You may well be right. I... Uh, and for which band did Richard Hell play before he became Richard Hell the Was Boy it Lord? the Moody Blues? No, it wasn't. The Bee Gees? No. Was it not even Camphor and his orchestra? No. Joe Loss? No. James Last? No. Um, Marky Moon? That's television? Yes. Richard Hell was originally with um, uh, television, and then he became the voice. Hence that line in uh, on television: "The drug of the nation, feeding ignorance and radiation." No, then Richie Richie said, "Hey man, let's dress up like cops. Think of what we could do. Think about all these seven. We that is get more obscure. But I do that's think that's not obscure. Television are not obscure. Television aren't shot by both sides is very good. That's magazine. Yeah, that's not obscure either. Why no. did you go there? No, no, just because for a moment. You just, there was a connection just, well, between television and magazine. It's one word." They're both media, come on. A very, a, a, a very close relative um, who, uh, who knew that I liked television because I'm a bit of a television obsessive. You know, I'm the, the person with the little Johnny Jewel live 12-inch blah, 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 who wanted to buy me a record and they accidentally bought me a record by the TV personalities who are not television. Not television. Let's be honest. The drug of the nation. Yeah. I, have this song, I do have a number of songs running through my head most of the time Which and I have just heard sung 
and this is and not from our production team, Get Down With Your Bad Self, is Rock the Boat by the Hughes Corporation. And at some stage during that, the guy, presumably Mr Hughes from his corporation... His corporation says, says get, get Down, down with, with Your Bad, bad Self. I think Get Down With Your Bad Self, OK, That's fine. It is. So There's I think, a Fugs song with a... But I can't... Do you think Rock the Boat... Can the Hughes Corporation and Rock the Boat make it into the playlist? Or just look at the playlist committee? Yeah, apparently that's in. We could put that in. Are you happy with that? Uh, yeah, I'd rather have the Fugs, but we can't put anything by the Fugs on because it's all... What is that? The Fugs. Tully Kupferberg, the Fugs. Very, very important band. Very, very important. Very yeah. famous. Never heard of them. You must have heard of the Fugs. No. You should just assume, by the way, that every time you start a sentence, you know that band, no, but that that's, film, that But that's that, music. That's no. music. That is something... I once had a, 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 a discussion with um, Jermaine Greer... Was she in the Fugs? No, but she was. She she knew the Fugs, and I was talking about something. She was talking about something, and she said, "Well, this is ridiculous. If we were really having this discussion, we'd be talking about the Fugs, and you know, as if to sort of pull this out of the hat as like you don't even know who the Fugs are." And I said, "That's great. Which of their albums shall we talk about first? Because I have them all." And then we were friends. Good. Well, that's very useful. Unfortunately, that conversation isn't going anywhere because I don't have any. Fugs albums. No, and unfortunately, I would. Uh, they did. They did a brilliant version of "How Sweet I Am." You know the William Blake uh, poem. How sweet I am when I. But uh, other than that, all the stuff is totally unbroadcastable. Well, but brilliant. Um, Kelly in Bristol would like to chip in at this point, given that we've been going for quite a while, have we? And not referred to a listener or a film. No, but we have proved the internet right that this section of the program has now exclusively become devoted to obscure seventies music. Actually, that summer was a movie, so actually that conversation was led in by yeah. a movie conversation, and it did indeed have Ray Winston in it and there is there is a picture of Ray Winston wearing the shirt that he wears so the, the com- good lord complainers the on internet can just take a hike that was a song by the Hughes Corporation wasn't almost it? certainly Kelly in Bristol dear Scott and Amundsen I first got on your got into your show at the beginning of this year when searching for podcasts to help my intermittent insomnia we're quite good at that kind of thing whilst at first your gentle wittering would help me fall asleep I soon discovered two issues with listening to the podcast as a soporific. One, your tendency to intersperse your talking with loud clips from films. Witter, 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 bang! But that's Basically not, that's, not that's really nothing to do with us. That's a production issue. Well, we, but we, we, we take full responsibility. Do we? Okay, fine. Okay. We take full responsibility. Point number two, what you, uh, what you say can actually be quite interesting. Oh, okay. No, you're listening to a different program. You're listening to QI. So I became a regular uh, listener, a fact which I mentioned to my good friend Alison, only to discover that she too is a devotee of the church. Our shared occupation also makes me wonder if there's room for a PA's pew somewhere. There's there, al- there's always is there's there room always for everybody? Room. Yes, as you know, it's like that bit in um in Tommy, isn't it? You know, there's more at the door and there's room for you know thousands of mansions, all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I think Tommy is misquoting the Bible, probably. Yes. But my father's house has many mansions, many mansions or and a nice annex with a garage. Your podcast, a little path that goes down between the two, and a shrubbery, shrubbery, with a split level where the path goes between. Your podcasts have therefore become an occasional point of conversation to us. Uh, be it Mark's thoughts on the latest film offerings, our shared love of a good Battenberg, or the iWitter app, it's regarding the last point that I write to you now. How much have you made from that this week? It's in four figures. I think. Oh, you've 
all right, well, you've got more than I have. That's not Sorry right. Sorry about that. I thought it was equal. We noted with some interest uh, when, at the height of the eyewitter madness this summer, <laughs> I know, wasn't that crazy? <laughs> it was pointed out that only two territories, North Korea and Antarctica, remained free of eyewitter users, a point which must prove vexing to those whose financial fortunes are tied up in its ubiquity. Quite right. Mm. Since then, the dear listener has ticked off North Korea, which is true, but Antarctica remains as yet unconquered, but potentially not for much lo- longer. You see, the reason this was of particular interest is that my aforementioned friend Alison is currently on holiday in the Southern Ocean on a cruise encompassing the Falkland Islands, South Georgia and then Antarctica. Wow. Indeed, as your show goes out on the 4th of November, she will be on the good ship Ushuaia. Ushuaia. Do that again. Ushuaia. How's it spelled? U-C-A-U-S-H-U-A-I-A. U-S-H-U-A-I-A. Yes. Ushuaia. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like Dory doing an impression of a whale. Now, on that good ship, heading towards Elephant Island, famous as the bleak rock on which Shackleton and his crew were stranded during their ill-fated endurance expedition a century ago. Alison and I have discussed our hopes that she will be able to access the iWitter app on a continent not known for its Wi-Fi capabilities. Although the ship does have Wi-Fi. That's the good ship. <laughs> but what if no one sees it when she checks in? If a Wittertainee checks into iWitter in Antarctica and no one is around to screenshot it, do you two still make a fabulous amount of wealth from having conquered the globe? There is extra bonus, which bonus comes to a new for a new continent, each new territory, which is which will be fabulous. And I did spend quite a long time this morning on the app looking around Antarctica. Did you really? Yeah, I genuinely did, and okay. it was uh, listenerless. <laughs> no one had downloaded it as far as I could see. I even went on the satellite bit, so you're not just looking at general map, you're looking at the photos of your actual Antarctica. And your actual Antarctica. Your actual Antarctica, and it was very icy. Your own, your very own, your actual Antarctica. <laughs> Would you welcome, please? If you're what un- we need to do is to get a, is to get a phone that's got a Witter app on it and attach it to a penguin. Is it penguins? There are no penguins in Antarctica. What, what are there in Antarctica? I don't think there's anything. There's nothing at all. No. There's no. There's <laughs> no natural life there at all. Just the good ship. <laughs> <laughs> I think famously the penguins are in the north, north. and there ain't nothing in the south. Okay. I might be entirely wrong about that. Okay. I'm sure there'll be a welter of emails. I'm sure there will. Uh, dear BBC, I was outraged whilst walking through Antarctica. You can imagine my shock. <laughs> With as I, my penguin pals. If you're unwilling to risk this possible loss of income, perhaps you could encourage our fellow church members to help me keep an eye on Antarctica in the upcoming days, specifically the Antarctic Peninsula and South Shetland Islands, for potential sightings of the lesser-spotted Antarctic Wittertainy. Who knows, we might be able to spot an ice Battenberg dead ahead. OK. Please could you also wish a safe return, give a big was-up to Alison, without whom... Hang on, we would the South Shetland Islands... Yes, apparently so. I'm just reading them. Shetland. That would be super. I mean, he, it may. But it may be that Kelly meant. But the Shetland, Shetland is north of, up there. Yeah, that's north, Simon. Up, yeah. but south might mean very, very south. Have you got your entire polarities confused, like Scotty out of no, Star Specifically, Trek. the Antarctic Peninsula. Yeah. Okay. And the South Shetland Islands. Our team are now stopping listening to Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Yeah. 
and they're checking I am a member of the where generation. South Shetland is because it might be that someone from the Shetlands went, went all that time ago and they thought, you know what, this reminds me a little bit of the Shetlands, Shetlands. so why don't we just call it, it, it South cold, Shetland? Because it's cold and there's no one here. There's also West Shetland and there's East Shetland here. And uh, hang on, and the results are in. Okay, go on. Aha. Uh-huh. Say uh, that out loud. Uh, okay, apparently there are albatrosses, penguins, seals, people, whales, buildings, uh, shops, cars, a whole range of invertebrates, horses, horses, dogs, cats, caterpillars, <laughs> and birds. It's basically of prey. like a menage. It's like Doctor Doolittle. It's isn't the it? most crowded dromedary there. Really? Is there a push me pull you? I don't know. Is there? <laughs> Almost in. It's the most common place for animals. Yeah. There's a zoo in Antarctica. <laughs> Everything is there. Everything I've just said is rubbish. Uh, but what I want to know before the show starts, I am not going on air unless I know about South, South Shetland. But can I? But can I ask you this? So Antarctica and so what's the opposite of Antarctica? What's the other end? Here it is. Here comes the here, here comes, comes the, the results. The South Shetland Islands are a group of Antarctic, Antarctic islands, islands, 120 kilometers north of the Antarctic Peninsula. Okay, there you go. Fine. So they're He's not saying Shetland. it in there. I'm saying it out here. Very good. It's not Shetland, but it's South Shetland. It's south of Shetland. They're called the South <laughs> Shetland Islands. I can't rename them just because it offends you. But anyway, so but who knew? There's a there's well, a well apparently apparently not us. It's it's part of the British Antarctic Territory. So actually, it's ours. Oh, we okay. could go and do a show there. Well, let's go and do it. I'm yeah. sure it would be easy enough to organise. Did you know that? Oh, sorry about that. The empire, <laughs> the empire stretches to the uh, to the Antarctic. Anyway, I don't that think was... we still refer to it as the Empire, Simon. I think, not? I think that's stopped. I think it ain't half hot, Mum has stopped playing on BBC One as well. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Oh, I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten that that was the catchphrase. Well, it was. <laughs> it was one of the few repeatable catchphrases from that program. Yes. Along with Mr. Lardy Dar Gunner Graham. <laughs> and, that, and that probably was it. Although the, although the funniest joke in that series was, because we were all of a certain age, we all watched it, was when he was talking to Mr. Lardy Dar Gunner Graham and he said, What are you reading? What are you reading? And he grabbed a book of him and he was reading um, Ulysses and then he looked at it and he went, Useless. <laughs> See, there were bits of it which were quite funny. Meet the gang because the boys are here, the boys, to entertain you. Music and laughter. We're not going to be playing that. We're not going to be playing I'm getting that. a look that says, Shut it and put those trunks on. Although Melvin Hayes, of course, was in the Double Deckers before that, wasn't he? Very good. We could play the theme from the Double Deckers. I love the Double Deckers. The double, do you remember the Double Deckers? I, I like to double. I do, I do. But a not, double, no, not, not a chewy bar. The, they double, were nice, though. They, I think they still exist. But the Double Deckers, the TV show, yeah, I do. was absolutely fab. Tip top. Well, already we've got Richard Hell and the Voidoids. The theme from the Double Deckers, get on board, get on board, get on board with the Double Deckers. Fun and laughter is what we're after on a Double Decker London bus. Who could ask for more? Exactly. Here comes the show. <laughs> what a load of nonsense. Six minutes past two. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. We're discussing movies between now and four o'clock. Hey, Mark. Hey, hey, as they say in Scandinavia. Actually, they say hi, hi. Do they? Yes. I was in Copenhagen so... at the weekend and... They say that all the time, and I really quite like it. You know, that's interesting that you say that because my, just yes. So my um, auntie, no, no, my child, my, my agent, head who you never is, and she says hi hi, because it never occurred to me that she says that because hi hi, because yeah, and if you were the, all the Scandi, Sorry, I just thought that was the thing that she did. So you're right. So she says it because it's a Scandi thing, apparently. So. She's she's from Dutchland. So um, 
How are you, by the way? I'm looking fine, looking yes. very chipper. Harry Threepleton has been is back on. Harry is twelve years old. Yeah, and comes from Guildford, and he's written before. I mean, yes, he has. Him. I remember. Three weeks ago, I wrote a review of Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Yes, and I was delighted to hear that it had been read out, even if my email had to be cut a bit. <laughs> Brevity is a something that you know we all grow into, but rarely achieved on this program. Yeah, and certainly nothing that I've ever grown into. Now that was not the final surprise I received. Jump forward in time a few weeks to Monday, the third of thirty-first of October, commonly known as Halloween. Says Harry. Thanks for the clarification. And I'd started school again with a trombone lesson on that day. After. Bearing through the tiresome morning, I headed into the tiny... This guy's 12. (laughs) Tiny room where my lessons happened, and inside was my trombone teacher. The lesson was pretty average until I reached a certain high note that I couldn't quite get to. My trombone teacher said that I would get there in the end and that everything would be all right, eventually. A bit of a random comment, I thought. Of course, at the time, I hadn't thought about the fact that this is what Mark often says. In response, I said, everything will be all right in the end, and if it's not all right, it's not the end. My teacher, my trombone teacher said, and say hello to Jason Isaacs. You do realise you were mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago. My mind was blown, Blown, says Harry Threepleton. After months of searching for another Wittitainee that was not my dad, <laughs> sounds like a desperate search, I finally realised that there had been one and I'd been taught by every every week. My teacher, Mr Chapel, had told me that he'd been waiting all the holidays just to say that one line. So the rest of the le- the lesson speaking uh, the rest the rest of the lesson speaking consisted mainly of how do you play the trombone? Well, you just play it. <laughs> how do you hold your breath for that long? You just hold your breath for that long. How do you annoy a trombone student? You just annoy a trombone student. So hello to Mr. Chapel, any other listeners of the show who may happen to know me, and of course to Jason. So the thing is, we could now this is almost like a a whole education system. In, in this one phrase. You're just, you are trying to make me Michael Gove, aren't you? That's what you want. That's why you're playing this. This is, a, this is an extended gag for which the punchline is that I'm Michael Gove. How do you get sacked as Justice Secretary? You just, <laughs> just get, get sacked as Justice, Justice Secretary. Secretary. Anyway, we're going to talk about magnificent glasses a bit later on because we will be talking about... Your chair is unbelievably loud today. It is. It's actually got louder. It has. All the people who've been sitting in here since last week have, I think they've messed it up. Thank you very much for the email. What? Oh, I, oh, I see. I thought I thought you were just. No, you didn't. You usually say at the end, "Thank you," but then you didn't. You yes, just got right. excited by Harry, your squishy chair. Thank you very much indeed for the email. Top ten coming up. Plus Ben Affleck and Anna Kendrick, special guests. They are accountants one and two, uh, and we'll be discussing accountancy and violence. <laughs> anyone who's met an accountant that does sound like a Monty Python. Basically, every... my hobbies are accountancy and violence. Have you ever met one? You'll probably understand why. Russell, was that racist? Probably. Probably. Jobbist. Russell Baldwin says, Having last week lost control of my car in the rain and spun off the road, I felt compelled to send this email. It sounds like the beginning of an insurance scam. While I admit, whilst I admit that I wasn't exactly thinking about Mark's words whilst failing to get my car under control, I can now safely say that what he said was true and that everything was indeed all right. What's more, given how bad it could have been, the fact that I was completely unhurt and I'm here to say hello to Jason and that all my problems are now financial, having to get a new car, I can now look to the future, safe in the knowledge that Mark will continue to be correct and everything will be all right in the end. And he's all right, no one was hurt. But in this week of weeks, are you able to say that everything will be all right in the end? (sighs) Okay, that's no, no, no. Look, I mean, yeah, yeah, actually, you know what? Now more than ever, it is really important to believe it. 
So, yes, everything will be all right. I'm really looking forward to next week's show. Uh, I'm looking forward to next week's show and being able to look you in the eye and go, everything is all right. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to that already. Good. I'm going to listen to the podcast every day just so I can hear you say that. Good. Uh, The box office top ten looks like this. Ouija, Origin of Evil. At number 10. I love the way you did that. Ouija. I try to make it sound like Gercha. <laughs> so there's a Chaz and Dave song. Chaz and Dave. Ouija. When big old man is looking down the pub. Ouija. Moving a glass across the board, <laughs> spelling out as though he's a dead man. <laughs> All right. That would be good. Chaz and Dave. Chaz and Dave's Ouija. <laughs> would that work for you? It does, yeah. Ouija. Okay. <laughs> I don't have anything to we say on the resort. Okay. No, no, but uh, there is words. Okay, so it's... I've got something here. Oh, I'll be very quick. No, do it. It's, it's better than the, the than the thing that precedes it. And uh, it starts off wanting to be, you know, a sort of uh, a 70s... It's said in the 60s, but said a sort of 70s style horror movie. And it's quite good on character development initially. It all goes crazy, go nuts, silly bit of poltergeist uh, in the final act, which is a shame. But it is notable for the fact that they went to all this trouble to, to make it look like a 70s movie, like set in the 60s, by putting all these uh, celluloid scratches on it, including the, the dots at the real changes. So even if you're watching it on DCP, which everybody will be, it looks like you're watching it off 35mm. Dave Carter in Birmingham. Squeegee, Origin of Evil, was entertaining enough and surprisingly well put together uh, for all that usually scary film product, the prequel. Although it got a bit silly, even for itself, in the last third. So that's kind of agreeing. Yeah, that's exactly it. Ouija. I can't. That, that's how I'm going to think of it now. Chaz and Dave's Ouija. I'm. I'm giving them a whole new career. Uh, Miss Peregrine and her home. The wheel. The, the, the table tappers and Shunter's social club. Never mind. That was very obscure. That was very obscure. Anyway, it's Miss Peregrine at number nine, uh, which I thought was okay. Actually, we had the email from Harry, who had uh, sort of uh, understood and appreciated it rather more than I did. My problem with it is, for all for all the fact that it's basically. Those classic Tim Burton elements, you know, the fantasy, the kookiness, the sort of strangeness, all that sort of stuff. It, it felt somewhat perfunctory to me. It never it never quite settled down into that classic Tim Burton tone, and particularly after we've had things like Big Eyes, which do remind you just what a fantastic you know what a fantastic job he can do when he gets things right. And it was interesting because in your interview with uh, Tom Ford, Tom Ford said that one of the reasons he he cast Amy Adams was that he saw her in Big Eyes. That's true. And uh, you know, and he said what a brilliant performance. And so Burton can get those performances out of people. I didn't think this was one of his best. And you mentioned that, and Amy Adams is on the show next week, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that movie again because I I think it's uh, this is the arrival. This is arrival, and I think it's one of the movies of the year, and it's definitely Abba's best album. Definitely, absolutely, no question. Uh, number eight is Ideal High Mushkill, and which I've not seen. I was off last week, and I think this came out last week. Uh, Nahar Dadheech says, being a parent to a young child means those trips to the cinema are like a rare treat, but I make the effort to try and catch this movie. Felt like I needed to see it uh, due to the incredible hype it's created. It's important to have a little context regarding this film. It has a stellar cast, but there has been so much controversy surrounding this film's release, mostly due to the director casting a Pakistani actor during India and Pakistan's current diplomatic tension. The story has a familiar ring to it. A young student in London is left heartbroken after he declares his love to his best friend, but she doesn't reciprocate. Isn't that just the way? It's a tale of a young boy growing up the hard way as he tries to come to terms with his unrequited love. There is great chemistry between the two leads and the locations and music are all beautiful. However, if you're looking for a subtle, nuanced piece on unrequited love, then this is not for you. I quite enjoyed the theatrical weepy, uh, though as I walked out of the cinema, I felt as though I'd just watched Love in the Time of Colour or turned up to 11. Uh, Niha, thank you very much indeed for the email. 
yes. Yeah, so at num- that's at number eight. Number seven is Storks, which <laughs> Storks is very odd. Uh, I mean, odd to the point of incoherence. It, it is kind of colourful and lively, and there are some, you know, quite interesting pan-generational jokes that, it's, you know, it mixes up the slapstick with some sort of quite wry humour. But I did spend the whole film thinking, this is, this is just as an idea, this isn't quite gelling together. It's that storks used to bring babies, now storks don't bring babies anymore, so storks have set themselves up as a postal delivery service, but they've still got the machine that makes babies, and they've got one of the babies that they accidentally didn't deliver has grown into a child and is now grown up, and there's something and the stork who's being... And and I, I have to say, I sat there thinking, OK, at some point this is all going to gel and come together brilliantly, and it never did. So I ended up watching it thinking there are things in it that are individually distracting set pieces with some good slapstick. But it is all over the place and it is a mess. That said, we had a couple of emails from younger viewers who I thought would be just baffled by the film, who did seem to enjoy it. That was a couple of weeks ago when it came out. Do we have any... Uh, no, we've got nothing okay. uh, on stalks. Inferno's at six. Oh, I mean, just just plain rubbish. Somebody uh, tweeted the show to say, you know, when are we going to stop pretending that Ron Howard is a good director? He's not a good director. Look at all these terrible films he's made. The interesting thing about Ron Howard is that Inferno came out very, very shortly after Eight Days a Week, the Beatles film. And the Beatles film was in cinemas really briefly. So many people wrote in to say, why can't we see Eight Days a Week? You know, where can, where can we find it? Isn't it officially called The Beatles Eight Days a Week? Dash the touring. Year. Yes, it is. Yes, and it's great, and you need to see it in a cinema. You really need to see it in a cinema, and it's a brilliantly directed film. And you know, Ron Howard has directed things like that, and Splash, which is just wonderful. I mean, you know, not a foot wrong. Apollo, and Apollo 13. thirteen, as he said in his interview with you, when people said to him, you know, well, you're not a Beatles fan. How, you know, how can you make eight days, days a week? He said, well, I'm not an astronaut, but Apollo thirteen seemed to do all right. But it's when he's working with Dan Brown, when he's working with Dan Brown source material, and it's very much the Fifty Shades of Grey thing, which is it doesn't matter how talented the filmmakers are. If you're putting that stuff on screen, it will be what that stuff is. And I did get the feeling when I was... I mean, some people have written to say, actually, he takes terrible liberties with Dan Brown's book. So I've heard. Yeah, well, but I I haven't read Dan Brown's book because I read the first 25 pages of The Da Vinci Code and thought this is the worst written thing I have ever read. And believe me, you know, as growing up as a young horror fan, reading, you know, Sean Hudson and uh, James Herbert and uh, Guyane Smith and, you know, all of whom wrote page turners, even though, frankly, many of them were not well written. Uh, you know, Dan Brown just isn't even in the same ballpark. Inferno is terrible. I enjoyed the Da Vinci Code, by the way, the book. I thought it was quite fun. Did you? Yes. Really? Yes. As indeed did an awful lot of people. In fact, many millions. No, but I'm surprised because you're, you know, you're quite an avid reader. You do read a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I just imagined that the the, pe- that the Da Vinci Code book was a book that was, it's like an airport thing that was, you know, people aren't probably read that book that year. Well, I think there is a difference between, uh, I would say, I would say Dan Brown is a fantastic storyteller. But it doesn't necessarily. But a terrible writer. Well, I'm just, but I'm just saying, you, you know, there are many people who are great storytellers, and you're going to read read their books. But this is like the 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 Kurt Vonnegut thing about Kilgore Trout. You know, Kurt Vonnegut inventing a science fiction writer called Kilgore Trout. Oh, I thought and, that was like a game. What? Kilgore Trout. I thought it was like you know. Okay. Yeah. No. Okay. So there's a recurrent character in Kurt Vonnegut's books called Kilgore Trout. He's a science fiction author, and. 
Kurt Vonnegut will start a paragraph. Kilgore Trout once wrote a book in which, and then he will describe the story over two paragraphs. And the story is invariably a really interesting story. But as Kurt Vonnegut says, the problem with science fiction is it's often a really interesting story, really badly written. So what Vonnegut, who himself did write a science fiction, well, he wrote more than one science fiction novel because Cat's Cradle is a science fiction novel, but he did write, because um, The Sirens of Titus is a science fiction novel, but he, that was his whole idea, was there can be great stories even though they're badly written. In the case of the Dan Brown, I literally couldn't get past page 25. Well, you should have tried harder then. It was great fun. OK. Thank you. By the way, Mr Chappell, the trombone teacher, yeah. has been, he's been twittering when he should be trumping, if, you know, in the traditional sense of the, okay. of the word. Yeah. A mention by Simon Mayo at Wittertainment, I have never been more proud of a student. How do you play trombone? You just play, play trombone. trombone. Mind you, if you're a trombone teacher, that's kind of giving it all away. Then. I hope he refers to his music class as Chapel's Music. That would be very good. That would be very good. If niche. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Bridget Jones' Baby is at number five. We kind of dealt with that. Yeah. Girl on the Train, number four. I, think I mean, it's, it's uh, done really well. It it's has. done really well. well and done. despite the fact that a lot of critics were very sniffy about it, I think wrongly sniffy about it, um, I got a... a a, a very nice tweet from the author of the book, uh, uh, who uh, who was very much in favour of the film, and uh, you know we'd reviewed it, and uh, she she just she just sent the tweet to say thank you, she'd enjoyed the review, and I was pleased because having not read the book until after I'd seen the film, I thought the film worked on its own terms. Most of the people who didn't like the film took against it because it wasn't quite the book, but it's still pretty close. Number three is Jack Reacher. Uh, never go back. Yeah. And also fit that into the Chaz and Dave oeuvre. Go on, how? Reacher. Oh, I see. Fine. <laughs> Fine. Um, uh, it, it, I was corrected on this. I had said when I did my review of Jack Reacher that uh, that I quite liked the first one. And somebody uh, tweeted me to say, no, you didn't. You didn't like the first one. And I was surprised. And I went back and checked on my review. And they were they were pretty much right I was much sniffier about the first one than I remember being. What I said was, Herzog is brilliant, but the film itself occupies a strange netherland between being a 12th certificate film and being a 15th certificate film. And it just all, it never, you know, it, it's very, very ordinary. And I, and I wondered why it was that I had remembered it better than that. And I'll tell you why it is. Why is it? Because I saw it again on a plane um, I was travelling somewhere and it was on the thing and I watched it again thinking that I had quite enjoyed it the first time round. And actually, the second time I did quite enjoy it, again, because I watched it because Herzog was in it. But you're quite right. You were quite right. I misremembered how down on the first one I was the first time round. Ali Wybrew says, having been preoccupied with the various inconveniences of life over the last few weeks, I decided to catch up on a recent wittertainments at the gym yesterday morning, particularly keen to hear the good doctor's review of Jack Reacher, NGB. Which I quite enjoyed. To say I was surprised would be an understatement. When watching the film, I was struck by how unimaginative formulaic and completely unengrossing it was. Well, it, Everything about it was offensively pedestrian. Bored by the transparent plot and distinct lack of peril, I held on to uh, the hope that Action Man himself would offer up some exciting fight sequences, but no. Running, running and more running with only the odd punch here and there. Was one action sequence choreographed as well as any in John Wick too much to ask? Was less clichéd first base dialogue too much of an expectation? At one point, I said Tom Cruise's line out loud in the cinema before he did resulting in me not only breaking the code but slapping myself on the forehead to see if I was having the world's most tedious dream. That's a little bit extreme, by the way, Ali. But anyway. Well, I mean, all I can tell you is, honestly, my response was very different. And I, I watched it sitting next to Boyd Hilton or just you know, a couple of seats away from Boyd Hilton. Um, uh, and 
and at the end of the film, I said to Boyd, who I I'm a huge fan of Boyd. I think he's got he has got a really really good eye for um, particularly for a po- you know for a popular movie. I remember I remember him defending Scott Pilgrim brilliantly against uh, Nigel. Nigel really didn't like it, and, and Boyd really did. And um, and we both said that was really good fun, wasn't it? it? Was you know it was I mean it's throwaway, it's fluff, but it's good it's good fun fluff. Plus, it is a film which is actually doing something quite interesting with its gender roles and you know it's it's absolutely a formulaic 12 certificate action movie but i thought it did it rather well an email was it was the first jack reacher 12 or 15 i think it was tw- i think it was 12 okay I think that's. I think that's. I think that's. Yeah, I think it was. But but anyway, carry on. I'll just. Uh, I'll just look it up while you're talking. Well, number two is trolls. Oh yeah. Okay. Which, I, which, for the weird thing with trolls was it just it was that kind of you know candy floss, uh, visual aesthetic. You know, pink, blue, green, all that sort of stuff. And <laughs> it's a film based on a toy that has a kind of retro charm, in which. The film has a couple of odd things going for it, but was largely very, very fluffy and forgettable, as you would kind of expect it to be. I've read a couple of reviews that think it's more subversive than that. I didn't. Uh, an email from Innes Nietzsche. I don't think spelt. The Nietzsche bit is N I T S C H E. Oh, great. As in Nietzsche. No, as I'm sorry. I just wonder whether it was as it, you I could, imagine that's how you pronounce not it. Not Nietzsche, yeah. like Reacher, yeah. Dear that was another Chaz and Dave. Nietzsche, when you're looking into an abyss. Nietzsche. <laughs> yeah, it was a, no, the first Jack Reacher was a 15. Dear Insanely Happy and Grumpy, I recently went to the pictures to see Trolls, uh, waiting to listen to the good doctor's opinion of it until I'd seen it. Whilst the review itself contained nothing unexpected, I was for a moment quite frustrated by the discussion of the pronunciation of the eponymous creatures, not because the subject was boring on the contrary, but because as someone who studied linguistics and teaches English, as someone who in theory knows the difference between troll and troll, I'm guessing at that, I had to listen to these segments several times before being able to actually hear the difference. I refuse to accept any defects in my listening skills or in my education and therefore advise you to attend the very authentic RP pronunciation class I had to take at the University of Vienna. Are you busy this weekend, Mark? Do you fancy going to an RP class at the University of Vienna? Absolutely, it'd be fabulous. Um, as far as the film's concerned, it might not be the Lego movie, but thankfully it wasn't Angry Birds either. It had a simple and pleasantly predictable story. It had music, it had funny jokes and a nice message. Although my friends assure me it's perfectly abnormal to constantly question the logic of animated fantasy kids' movies, I do have one question. Why is it that the kidnapped trolls, all of whom, all of them equipped with magical hair, and many of them small enough to fit through the, the bars, bars in the thing cage, and the bars in the cage, that's the, are unable yeah. to free them? Yeah, I mean that's the big one. They're smaller than the holes in the bars in the cage. Just walk through the bars in the cage. A uh, quick update on this: Jack Reacher is both a fifteen and a twelve. Ah. The theatrical, the theatrically released version was cut by two seconds for a twelve A. And the uncut version is 15. That's why there was that thing about it was somewhere between a 12 and a 15. But the theatrical version was a 12A and there is an extended version of video, which is 15. The box office number one is Doctor Strange. I'm going to read a bunch of stuff and then you're going to tell me what you think of this stuff and the aforementioned movie. Debbie Patterson. I'm not usually a huge fan of comic book superhero movies, but Doctor Strange was the next film due to start when I arrived at the cinema today, so I took the plunge. For the first time ever, I considered walking out of a cinema. I'm a huge fan of Benedict Cumberbatch in his usual foppish roles, but he ain't no superhero. (laughs) The script was so hammy, some of the acting was laugh-out-loud hilarious. The part where he was running on the spot was snort-inducingly funny and not in a good way. Though the second half where the action kicked in was better than the first half, overall just boring, and I considered using the time to take a nap. 
Dr Amanda Fleet. My good gentleman husband, him indoors, and I went to see Dr Strange last night. Now, having subluxed my shoulder, sublux meaning partially dislocated... Oh, that sounds horrible. ...earlier in the day and being dosed up on codeine to be able to sit still and not break the code, I recognise I might not have been in quite the right brain space to have enjoyed this film to its full. I'd be mostly looking forward to it after Mark, whose opinion chimes with mine 100% of the time, almost, had said it wasn't bad. For once, though, I found myself disagreeing. I found it really, really dull. Yes, the special effects were jolly nice and all that, although borrowed from Inception, and the actors were all wonderful, and there were a not insignificant number of chuckles, many from the antics of the cloak, but it was just dull. The fight scenes and moving moving buildings were repetitive, the action wasn't all that tense, and the plot was muddled in more than a couple of places. One more. Aidan Hughes, I thought it was fantastic. Easily the best Marvel film since Iron Man. Witty dialogue, beautiful art direction and the most astonishing CGI I've seen to date. Plus, some great performances make this one of the most recommended films of the year. Nine out of ten. Anyway, Doctor Strange, what did you think? Well, I I quite enjoyed it. I mean, in terms of vision, it is very, very strange and you know trippy and weird in a kind of Ken Russell altered states way. There are there are certain sequences in it when he's first sort of getting in touch with you know the the power that he has inside, which have I mean absolutely a kind of CG version of what Ken Russell was doing in altered states. Obviously, there are other moments in which the cities are folding, which is very much uh, post Inception. But those are films which I like, and I didn't have any problem with you know with the film referring to that and I was I was I was enjoying it greatly up until the point that um I was in uh, a cinema in uh, the west end because I hadn't seen it and I wanted to catch up with it and it was you know a, not an expensive seat and I was in the balcony and this is pea-brained bloke in the balcony turns his phone on after there's been two messages saying two things other things saying turn your phones off turn your phones off so the guy's got his phone on and it's lighting his face up like a super trooper and he's not turning the phone off so i think okay so i go out to try and find an usher can't find one come back in again think oh this is ridiculous so i go over and tap him on the shoulder and go turn your phone off were you slightly politer than that no i said in exactly that way okay. i tapped him on the shoulder and said turn your phone off the rest of the film was unfortunately rather bothersomely troubled by uh, said gentleman and his uh, and his pal being uh, cross about this uh, about being told to turn the phone off, uh, and it was one of those things that I thought it was a tribute to how good the film was that despite the frankly hostile air in the cinema, the film did manage to keep me engrossed, even though there was sort of this. I mean, every everyone who's ever had to tell someone to turn their phone, and I tweeted this, and a lot of people said, yeah, believe me, the same thing happens. And it is, it's a really sad indictment of the way cinemas are now. Firstly, that there wasn't an usher around to do it. I have to say the management of the cinema, when they were informed of what happened, were very, very good about the whole thing, very apologetic, said there absolutely should have been an usher around, it was terrible, and they gave me a refund, which was kind of them. Um, But it is that awful thing that, you know, people behave badly in cinemas, but if you tell them not to, it's like your experience with uh, the cinema near you, in which... Oh, yeah. You know, with the drug dealers. With the drug dealers. Do you want to go and tell them to turn, your, to turn their phones off? Or do no, you, you I would quite happy just exactly. let them. But I just, you know, I, it's, it was a kind of principle thing. I thought, I'm sorry, you cannot sit there in the front row of the balcony with your phone on. And uh, so I explained to them that that was the case. And uh, they didn't take it well. Did you tell them about the podcast and refer them to our code of conduct? No, I referred them to other programmes that are available. Excellent. Control yourself. Calm down. Everything's going to be fine. In the end. Doug the accountant in Barnes Green. So there'll be a, <clears throat> a whole bunch of accountants eagerly awaiting uh, your verdict. I'll just say that my, 20 minutes. my accountant, who I saw this morning, he's called Henry, is a huge amount of fun. Henry the accountant? Henry, yeah. Did he have, a, did he have a sawn-off shotgun? 
<laughs> no, so he's not Ben Affleck. Account- this, uh, Doug says, accountancy and violence, which Mark and Simon are talking about, <laughs> has a longer film history than you might think. I bet, yeah. Charles Martin Smith, the accountant, as one of Brian De Palma's untouchables, carried a gun and let's not forget, came up with a plan that caught Al Capone. Christopher Eccleston in That's Shallow true, yeah. Grave, holed up in the attic, was not an accountant to cross. That's right, I'd forgotten he was an accountant, yeah. But on the lighter side, Charles Grodin's heartwarming and comic accountant in Midnight Run, Run is one of my favourite characters. See you in the next life, Jack. That's a very good neighbourhood. Doug, the accountant in Bunk Green. Very okay. good. Well, let's take that to whole new levels uh, of maths, uh, VAT, uh, and violence. When we speak to <laughs> Ben Affleck and Anna Kendrick, who are the stars of the new movie, The Accountant, and you'll hear from Ben and Anna after this clip. What is this place? Pan America Airstream. 34 feet 7 inches long, 8 feet 5 inches wide. Dimensions which are perfectly adequate for one person. Preferable, even. This is where you live? No, I don't live here. This is a storage unit. That would be weird. That's what would be weird? I'd like to spend more time here. However, I'm afraid some of my clients might follow me. Why would your clients follow you? You're an accountant. And that's a clip from The Accountant. It stars Anna Kendrick and Ben Affleck. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having us. I'm only laughing because there is some drilling going. It's either drilling or it's a machine gun. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or a very loud cat. (laughs) Or a woodpecker. Hey. (laughs) Sorry, I thought that joke would work better. That's fine. Yeah, it's okay. It was was pretty good. Anyway, so I'm sort (laughs) of... Sorry. Anyways, big lot of noise. Uh, so the accountant, Ben is the accountant. But actually, Anna, you're kind of the accountant. You're an accountant. Yeah, I think the movie's definitely titled after the supporting character of Dan. <laughs> okay, well, let's start with Ben then. Tell us about your accountant. Yes, tell uh, us about a guy who's a, who's a um, very gifted at math and numbers and um, is a uh, you know, high-level accountant, but he's doing his work for... Uh, criminals at the beginning of the movie at the, and at the outset we're not sure what to make of that or of him and um, you know there's a series of, of reveals in the movie and surprises and twists and I don't want to give too many of them away but nothing is exactly what it seems and this character is very one of the things I was drawn to about him is interesting and enigmatic and multi-layered so what you're saying is he's not your average accountant right exactly there's nothing nothing is what it seems in this movie okay. exactly Anna, you're good with numbers as well. You're kind of an accountant as well. So explain where you fit into the story. Uh, Yeah, she's an accountant in the traditional sense where she is not also an assassin and a criminal. Um, (laughs) So she's like the bar. She's the movie that you don't want to (laughs) see. And yeah, she, uh, you know, uncovers uh, some problems in the books at the company she works for. And um, it's one of those classic doesn't realize what she's stumbled upon uh, things and she assumes that she's going to be a part of uh, the financial investigation and when Ben's character shows up uh, he is a little bit confused by that and she sort of just worms her way into the process and they end up trying to piece the puzzle together um, as a team however reluctant it begins. Yeah it's fair to say Ben your character Christian doesn't really welcome anybody else into his world. You know one of the things that's interesting about it is I think he's a guy that wants connection and actually really on some level is like getting a lot out of his experience of working with Anna's character and that interaction is just not able to express it in this sort of conventionally normal normative way that you know he's uh, he's got some 
sort of things that are holding him back from in being able to socialize in the way that other people can. And uh, so it was really interesting to see, to do these scenes with her, you know, where there was something that really drew him to her, but that he also he couldn't express it and he couldn't connect with her exactly. And it made it, you know, fun to play. Yeah. And in, and in flashbacks, we see your backstory and you have, your character has, uh, has high-functioning autism. Right. He's uh, high-functioning is autism, sometimes called Asperger's syndrome. Uh, and his father was so afraid that he would be a victim, you know, that he did he sort of and he was a military guy. And so that was the world that he kind of knew. You know, He wanted to make his son tough. And so, you know, he sort of like, you know, the great Santini kind of thing, you know, just drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled these military exercises into his kids. And because I have a brother in the movie as well. And uh, I found it kind of moving, you know, strangely, this idea that this abuse kind of came from a place of love, really in fear and being protective of, of, of his child. And how do you shape this character? What research, who did you meet to? Because obviously, I mean, some movies in the past have been criticized for portraying autism as like a superpower, which it clearly isn't. How do you avoid the stereotypes and the cliches for, for a movie like this? That was really important to me. And I went into this very gingerly in um, working with experts and teachers and then sitting down with um, a group of, of men who were... Um, on the spectrum at various places and sort of tentatively said, you know, hey, look, is this okay? Or this is one of the ways this happens in the story. And the people that I worked with were just, they were like, it's great. It's fabulous. We love the fact that there's an autistic character at the center of this movie. You know, don't change it. Don't take it out. It's, and, uh, and not only did they love that, but they had a lot of like suggestions and uh, tips and tips from behavior and, and ways they would say, yes, I, I know what this is like. I feel this way or I don't I haven't had this experience. And so to me, it was important to root it in, in the real experience of, of real people. Now, granted, no, no two autistic people are exactly the same, the same way that, you know, no two norm, you know, neuro, neurotypical people are the same. But, uh, you know, I just want to find some behaviors that were that were honest. I wonder if you were attracted by the script, actually, that it was the um, that is quite unusual in the shifts of tone. It's you know, it is a, an all out thriller action movie. But then at times it's also uh, quite a lighthearted drama. Yeah, I thought that was you know the originality of the script was the first thing that really drew me to it. And the fact that it was surprising and there were reveals that I didn't see coming and. And also the multi-genre fusion, I thought was really brave and really interesting. And I thought the writer pulled off, as you say, the elements of action and suspense and thriller in combination with, you know, comedy and, and drama. And uh, it made it really interesting. So I didn't just, you know, I didn't sort of know exactly what to expect from the first minute to the last. Apart from the research that you were talking about in terms of talking to people with high-functioning autism or Asperger's, that I imagine you have to do quite a lot of training and stunts uh, and so on I don't, I don't know how that compares with what Anna had to had to go through and the the, the whole rigorous process of numbers and accounting yeah, I know I'm so I can't speak to Anna's preparation but, uh, <laughs> I can say that the fight stuff was a lot of um, just a lot of work you know kind of you know rehearsal doing it over and over again and trying to get in shape enough where you can throw somebody over your back and you know do the stuff that Pentox a lot this martial arts style that Gavin um, incorporated into He's the, the movie. Director, yeah. The ga- director, yeah, uh, you know, is very f- sort of flashy and showy, um, and yet kind of ruthless and efficient at the same time. So it suited the character. How does that compare with your training for the part? <laughs> uh, well, my training were, was just like really nice, uh, long conversations with my mom, who was helping me. She's an accountant, so she um, was 
helping me make sure that I was never saying something that I didn't understand, which was, in my opinion, a lot better than fighting dudes. Are you easy to direct, Ben, given that you are a hugely successful director and also Live By Night is, is not far away now? Thank you for the plug, and I um, and I love I love the hosier music over the trailer. By the way, yeah, what a fantastic, yeah, it's track a great song. Uh, yes, I think I'm very easy to direct because I think because the, I only work with directors who, you know, at this point in my career, who I really trust and who I admire and who I can learn from and in whose hands I feel safe. And um, I think the best way to work as an actor with a director is to totally surrender yourself to their vision and their direction, and that. Uh, and, you know, so I'm willing to do that with the directors that I work with. And it makes it really easy because I want to be going in the same direction. And it's not that I don't try to, you know, volunteer ideas or collaborate in any way. I think, you know, all actors, or most the vast majority of actors do. But, um, but I also have a very strong sense of trying to complete the director's vision. I wonder whether there's an element from just bearing in mind everything that you just said, whether there's an element to Bruce Wayne in Christian Wolf. Um, there is, I suppose, in the kind of secret identity aspect of it, you know, him having multiple identities, you know, uh, being one person on the surface and then another person and uh, underneath. And there's definitely, I guess the other parallel I would say is I think Batman is the kind of um, real person's superhero. I think that's what makes him so appealing is that he's actually not super. He's just a man trying to do this. And so he's as vulnerable and as, as any of us. And um this is a story about like a, a guy who's built a lot of compensatory mechanisms to handle his vulnerabilities as well. Yeah. And is he looking for a Robin? This has been discussed, and I've also seen the footage of, uh, of the Anna. The footage of me very seriously vying Desperately for the role. You found that Robin. some people fa- did not realize that was a sketch. Which, <laughs> which, is, kind of which is amazing because, it, as sketches go, we weren't really going for realism. We weren't too committed, no. To no, mix, we yeah. really. I mean, I literally appear magically in a cape. I mean, that was my, yeah, that was my very real technique. Dressed as Robin. Yeah. I mean, I think... Um, I would be a very believable Robin if Robin was known for being really bad at fighting crime. <laughs> and are you directing? That's the idea. I'm not directing it yet. I haven't started it yet. We don't have a start date. We're not finished the script. We're, you know. But you would like to direct? I would like to, yes. I've, an, I've announced my intention. To. <laughs> so you are in charge. So if you want That's, the Robin. Uh, yeah, exactly. up, up in the air. I guess so. Trolls is, uh, is out as well. Yeah. Uh, which you've done with, uh, with, with Justin Timberlake. Yeah. And, and Pitch Perfect 3, how far off is that? I think we're supposed to start that finally in January. Um, I'm just waiting for the big red phone to ring when it comes to that one. I've given up on trying to keep track. The big red phone takes it right back to Batman, by the way, in my head. Because oh, I was thinking of like a, the, a presidential... like the Russian the nu- prime minister. Yeah. Oh, exactly, the nuclear codes. And uh, you're, on Twitter, you, you have like... 20 million people following you so uh, it, it isn't a surprise I think from anyone who's been following you to know that you've got a uh, that you've done some writing and you have a book of essays yeah it's sort of a scrappy little nobody it's extraordinary because um yeah you know buzzfeed has said i'm very funny with 140 characters and someone made the decision that that meant i could you know write a how many characters did they give you to write the book a few more um so yeah i don't know there was a point where i was like is anyone gonna stop me like there's no way that i can do this right um and yet it has happened it's very exciting and when's that when is that coming out uh november 15th 
there was also I saw an exchange where you were doing some. You did a, a, a really strange um, Twitter question and answer session in which you got questions like, um, "What's your favorite meal?" and "If you were an animal, what kind of an animal would you be?" So I, I said I mentioned on Twitter that I was coming to to meet you, and I got these questions. So please deal with them in, the, in oh, all, with all the seriousness that they're appropriate. Yeah. In the light of recent currency news, should investors consider divesting from UK gilts, Anna? I really, really hope somebody actually asked me that. Well, I'm asking you now. Do you think um, we should divest of UK gilts? Yes, immediately. Okay, ben, are you aware of the 10% tax credit on dividends that has been abolished? I think that's a healthy thing for the economy. And a question to both of you, if I could. Um, what do you think of the move to the QuickBook style of cloud-based accountancy? Terrible mistake. I, you know, I it's think it's more functional. You think? Well, we disagree on this point, Ben. Yeah, we, 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 we've gone back and forth on this, I don't know how many times. How many times? times? Well, uh, I could always ask what your favorite meal is, but I think that, was go- I think that got to the heart of the current debate. I'm glad, I'm glad you came with, to us with yeah, this. Is it I'm only someone... 10%? You, you pay taxes on your dividends here? So the capital gains tax is only 10% in the UK? What are you asking me for? I don't know. You're the, you're the accountant. The account, that's true. But in America, we don't know British tax law. Yeah, no, it's his 10% tax credit on dividends being abolished. Anyway, I don't know. I just wrote it down. It sounded like an interesting, controversial issue for accountants to discuss. Uh, ben Affleck and Anna Kendrick, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Thank for you so much. Thanks a lot for having us. Did you know that that uh, particular tax relief had been abolished? I, I wasn't up to date with that, no. But I, I was gratified to find out that they would they'd been discussing it and, <laughs> and they sort of disagreed exactly. straight away it's a, it's a broad church right at the heart um, of the issue of accounting well done uh, okay well the accountant uh, that's ben affleck and she's an accountant too what did you make of that it's a very odd and very uneven but not unenjoyable film um, that's lots of uns, isn't it? So um, directed by Gavin O'Connor, as they said, who did uh, Jane Got a Gun, and the screenplay, uh, screenplay by Bill Dubuque, who was one of the writers on The Judge, that film in which you remember, oh, Robert Downey came, in, came yes. on the show. That had a father-son thing. It was about a judge who may or may not have committed a crime, but he couldn't remember, and the point was because he was suffering from dementia, but he didn't want to admit that he was because it would throw all the rest I of his cases that, into. Yes. An interesting, again, slightly flawed, but an interesting film. So, again, here you have a father-son relationship. I mean, Ben Affleck talked about it in that clip, that the idea that the son is toughened up by his dad, who says, you know, you're, 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 you're different, but your difference is your strength, but you have to toughen up, you have to, you have to be strong. And there's there's actually the early those early scenes are not unlike some of the early scenes from uh, an officer and a gentleman in what happens to uh, to Zach Mayo of course uh, your your alter ego yeah, thanks. The, the thing with the film is it sounds like a very intriguing uh, premise um that you know he he that, that the central character played by Ben Affleck has uh, certain social difficulties but is also you know he has incredible math skills and the problem with the film is it's not quite sure how to connect that up with the idea that he is also a samurai type, uh, you know, uh, stealth warrior with these incredible. And then we, we give him backstory to how that happened, but the film itself stylistically never quite makes a difference. So on the one hand, you get those scenes of him doing the thing of drawing, you know, writing equations on window, and he's written them all. There's a scene in which he's written them all the way around the room, and he's standing looking at all the figures. And he starts to see threes. And then Anna Kendrick's character comes in and she sees the threes as well. She sees the pattern that nobody else sees, that he sees. And that's and actually, I quite like their relationship, the fact that they're both slightly uneasy with each other, but they both share this sort of understanding of math. 
And then on the other side of it, there's the fact that he is this guy who can take out, you know, 9, 10, 11 guys with his bare hands with, uh, you know, high-powered weaponry because he's been... And so the movie sort of goes from being, on the one hand, this thing about a guy who lives in a... Well, he's got a house, but he's also got a trailer, which has got Jackson Pollock on the wall, and he's brilliant with figures, but he's also... And it feels like there are two different movies welded together. Now, you very astutely said in that interview, isn't there a bit of Batman in this? And there is, certainly, that idea, you know, that you've got the reclusive figure who's very, very secretive, has extraordinary powers, but is, you know, one removed from the world. And in the case of Ben Affleck's character, the difference is... That Batman has a comic strip um, understanding of the world, which is a perfectly logical understanding of the world, but it is a particular understanding of the world. And the accountant is playing much closer to something which wants to be real. So when it goes into its outlandish stuff, which almost does tip into, it is kind of the samurai or, you know, superhero stuff, that does seem to come from a different movie, from a different side. So you get this peculiar collection of a different it's like it wants to be three different things it can't quite decide what it is that it wants to say about the central character it can't quite decide whether the tone wants to be action adventure or co- there's quite a lot of comedy I mean Anna Kendrick there are huge moments in it in which Anna Kendrick actually does raise a laugh through the smallest gesture because she's naturally very funny she's also a brilliant you know very very good performer and yet the film itself can't quite decide the tone we then move towards a denouement which has got Big twist coming, big twist coming, and which I'm not going to give away. But I said to you, what's, what's the twist? Well, I'm, not, I'm not going to. But I said, oh. I said to you, you know, if you, it, it was, it was telegraphed very heavily in advance. But that's okay. That in itself is not awful. So it's okay. It's entertaining up to a point. It's completely incoherent. I mean, it really is incoherent. It it cannot decide how to deal with it. Well, the, I mean, and there's another thing which I think we could explain without giving anything away. The J.K. Okay. J. Simmons is in it. Yeah. Uh, and he's like a treasury boss. Yes. Uh, and and his side of the story, and he's launching this investigation as to who this person is and... Why, who are they? Who is the accountant? That's right. Paul, and right. he gets somebody into his office and he... Then he, and then this isn't giving anything away, is it, to say that he says, ah, well, there's something in your past, so therefore you must do what I say. What you must do is go and find out who is the accountant. Yes. Well, actually... First of all, those sides of the stories almost they kind of never meet at all, and unless they're being very except, something. Except there is a se- I think we, this isn't giving us anything away. There is a sequence about two thirds of the way through the film when literally J.K. Simmons explains the plot for about ten minutes. In case you haven't in heard the worst no, well of course you have. We could, in the worst voiceover I have ever heard, he suddenly turns into. This absolutely dreadful pastiche forties noir. I was just a young rookie with my thing doing the thing, but then this guy came, and you just go, "Really? Now? Really? The, really?" Yeah. I was, uh, pe- people will will differ on this. I the reason I phrased the question to Ben Affleck about portraying someone with autism as someone, you know, that there is a danger that it's cliched and because if you have autism, it shouldn't be portrayed as a superhero power, as a special power. And I did think that it it strayed into that area, that it made it almost like a glamorous superpower that he had. And I I felt that was uncomfortable. I think that's what I mean in saying that it's confused about how to deal with its subject matter because there are certain things in it in which it is... And Ben Affleck talked in that interview about, you know, he wanted to research it properly, he wanted to find out whether... I think the phrase he used was, is this okay? Um, 
And yet the film itself is awkward in relation to that because it never quite decides whether it's dealing with it in a fantastical way and what you refer to as a superpower way or whether it's dealing with it in a serious way or whether it's dealing with it and if it just doesn't quite know and consequently the two sides of Affleck's character this is the thing I think that you were saying that they don't seem to match up that there is on the one hand the fact that he is and plus again without wishing to give the whole reason about him being called when you come to the end of the film this is the only way of explaining when you come to the end of the film you go hang on a minute why is he called in to do that why didn't he tell them that why is where and that so and that all falls that all then falls apart but it but they're they're all very watchable but and it's yes and that's the weird that's why i was saying at the beginning that that it's not unentertaining but it is preposterous and it is occasionally frustrating but it's kind of it's it's enjoyable and yet it's a total mess. Steve Wherry says, Hello from Bath. I visit Las Vegas regularly and go to see films at Southport Casino. Watched The Accountant in a sold-out theatre last month. At the end, everyone clapped. It was a really entertaining movie. That evening I read the reviews in the local magazines, two stars out of five. Told some friends who took my advice. They thoroughly enjoyed it as well. Some films are more word of mouth, and this is going to be yeah, one it's not, of them. It's not a, it's not a two-star film. It's If we're going to have to be doing two, it's, I would say it's three, right? Three? Two. Oh, OK, fine. So I think I liked it slightly more than you did in that Mick case. Thompson, I saw a preview screening of The Accountant, absolutely loved it, best film I've seen all year. And how Ben Affleck managed to have his eyes a little closed for the whole film was extraordinary. Uh, it just didn't look like him at all. I'll definitely be going to see it again. I thought it, looked, I thought it thought did look like him. but It looked exactly like him. Exactly like Ben Affleck. And Ben in Whitstable, I went to the pictures to see an advanced screening of The Accountant and I have to say I was thoroughly impressed. Affleck did an amazing job playing a man living with autism, reminded me of the character Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy, where his deadpan literal reactions whilst interacting with other members of the cast were at times very funny. For eagle-eyed viewers out there, I don't know if the good doctor saw this too, but in Wolf's Airstream Caravan, where the weapons, passport money and that kind of stuff is, yeah. he has a series of comics that he took with him. Yes, he takes out the first issue of action, which early. is Superman lifting up the car, yeah. But that's, that, I mean, that was flagged up that's, very... And yeah. that's where Batman debuts. Okay, fine, fine, fine. That's the connection. Oh, sorry, of course. Sorry. Nice, cheeky, self-referential moment. In the next hour, reviews of these films. Uh, Nocturnal Animals, Light Between the Oceans, Street Cap, Name Bob and more. Uh, Just on the subject of The Accountant, having heard from Ben Affleck and Anna Kendrick in the last hour, Andy and Harpenden. Uh, I've just seen it at the Ultra Cinema in Hemel Hempstead. It had indifferent reviews, but I found it very interesting and entertaining. Terrific performance from Ben Affleck. Good supporting cast. I wonder if the it'll be one of those films where the reviews are in general a little bit more sniffy than the uh, audience reaction. Well, that's certainly, I mean, certainly of all the, those reactions that we've had so far, they've all been very positive. And I mean, as I said, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think I think I like it more than you do. I still think I think it's flawed and it is an absolute mess, but it's a not unenjoyable mess. But it is a mess. I mean, there's just no question. Absolutely. It is a mess. No, I agree with that. Uh, some cinema news. I have some cinema news for you, Mark. Yes, go ahead. Uh, before are we going to do uh, Nocturnal Animals? We are going to do Nocturnal Animals in just a second. Yeah. Uh, Joe Neeltovsky says, uh, uh, "Yes, I'm a VLTL, so he's a very long-term, long-term listener." listener. Uh, from as far back as I remember, but first time email it. Just thought I would get in touch regarding the fleeting question near the end of your last show relating to the existence of ABC cinemas. Oh, yeah. Uh, in That's the right, yes. Well, I'm delighted to tell you that one of these delightful beasts still exists in the High Street, Westover Road, Bournemouth, to be precise. It's a great old cinema with three good-sized screens. 
for some reason was spared in the takeover of several years ago when the other remaining ABCs were rebranded into the Odeon fold. Sad news is, however, that it won't be around much longer as it... Um, as it and the nearby Odeon are to be pulled down in favour of flats and retail, which might sound familiar, in 2017, while a replacement cinema will be opened elsewhere in the town. Surely an example of replacing the irreplaceable. It's been great having you as constant companions over the years. I'm not sure if he's talking to ABC or to us. Us. Oh, yeah, there is. Mark is dead right about the kids of today. I'm a recently retired teacher. So when you... In fact, we both uh, endorse the... Uh, kids today being a lot better educated than what like absolutely, we were, yeah. and that teachers being better like than what yeah, we got. Absolutely. Can also, we, so go Thea McLean just on the cinema news. Yes, a very long time listener here, back from when Nicola was talking about Pont Neuf. <laughs> For the record, it's not only Zimbabwe. This is this is a reference to when we talk. We were talking about the pictures. Yes. Okay. Uh, and then someone said in Zimbabwe, it's a ref- It's called the bioscope. bioscope. Well, uh, apparently it's not just there. I'm a colonial commoner of the Australian variety living in Jakarta, Indonesia. In the native language, Bahasa, Indonesia, we call it the uh, the bioscope. And I'm just back from the bioscope where I took in a showing of Bridget Jones's baby. Uh, it cost me 40,000 rupiah to get into the cinema. That, and that sounds steep, but I don't. I have no idea what... Forty? Do you not know? Are you not familiar with the exchange rate? Well, how's Has the, Brexit how's, not taught you anything? How's the pound doing against the rupee at the moment? Well, it's two pound forty. Uh, to, wow! To forty thousand rupee. Forty thousand rupee is two pound forty. That's a lot of loose change. That is. So I'd like to give a shout out to the other Wittertainee in this mad city of twenty-five million people that I found via the hugely profitable. Uh, app. Thank you very much indeed. So, Salam from Jakarta, that's Thea McLean. And can I just say on behalf of both of us, thanks to uh, Heather Lyons, who I had the great pleasure of meeting in Belfast the other day when I was doing a screening. She was asking a question about um, uh, screenings uh, for uh, uh, for the blind and screenings uh, which have audio uh, assistance mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. It was a really interesting question because I had been talking about Notes on Blindness, which has just come out on DVD in three separate versions uh, for, you know, uh, for, for different audiences. And the audio track is completely mixed differently. Anyway, she was very kindly uh, gave uh, cards to both you and me. It's my first Christmas card. Yeah, I know it is. Which I is know. a lovely thing. Beat me to the punch, which is... So anyway, thank you so much, Heather. That was really kind of you. So it's 10 minutes past three. You can get in touch. 85058, mayo at bbc.co.uk. You can watch the live stream via the Radio 5 Live website. Uh, so one of the most talked about movies, Nocturnal Animals. Yeah. Tom Ford was on the show a few weeks back. He was, and you found him uh, very charming. And, very charming, uh, and he he didn't look at me at all while we were doing the interview. He did when I was asking the questions, but I think that was just because he was he thought focusing. He was so much better looking than him that he didn't want he to was, be distracted. He, he, was, he, he thought I was better moisturised. I'd put more thought into my work. He was averting his gaze. There was, there was a what moment. What are you doing? We're averting our gaze. <laughs> there was a moment where I thought... As I walked into the to the hotel where we're doing this, I should have thought more about what I was wearing because Tom Ford will judge me immediately. <laughs> he walks in, he'll go, hmm. Were you dressed as a scruff? I was dressed as a teenager like normal. Okay. You know, but he, he emerged looking impeccable, just as you would imagine yeah. that he would be. Yeah, well, I interviewed him very briefly on the red carpet at the London Film Festival and I was dressed fabulously as I am now. Did he notice? I think so. Because he was, because he was more fabulous. more fabulous. Okay, so Nocturnal Animals, um, which is uh, adapted from uh, an Austin Wright novel from 1993 called uh, Tony and Susan, and is it's interesting that you were just saying that about uh, you know the fact that you knew that Tom Ford would be immaculately turned out. Obviously, we've seen Tom Ford direct before, right? Direct in uh, A Single Man, which is a very good film with. Uh, 
uh, Colin Firth. This is his second feature. It's taken seven years, I think, between A Single Man and this. And the thing that Tom Ford has always been particularly attention to detail. Attention to detail is everything. And the first thing to say about nocturnal uh, nocturnal animals is like the pair of glasses, the saline glasses that, that uh, I knew them. you'd love them. Uh, but it, it, it is a film which is designed to within an inch of its life, in which there is nothing that is not there, absolutely, specifically, pristinely on purpose. Uh, so the story is uh, Amy Adams is living this vacuous, very, very uh, privileged life in the L.A. art world. She is married to uh, Army Hammers Hutton, who is a sort of creepy guy who keeps going away on business. Financially, they've, they've, they're in trouble, but emotionally it's even worse than that. She then receives out of the blue a manuscript by her former husband, Edward, who was an artistic type played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And the, the uh, manuscript uh, starts to be read by her whilst her husband is away on business. And as she reads the manuscript, which is a story about a family being run off the road in West Texas by a gang of rednecks with absolutely appalling consequences, she starts to feel her current life unravelling and her past life somehow coming back to haunt her. There are three stories going on simultaneously. One of them is her current life. The other is the dramatisation of the story in which Jake Gyllenhaal plays the husband in the story and Isla Fisher plays the wife in the story who is clearly a stand-in for Amy Adams. I thought it was Amy. Yeah, exactly, playing on the very sort of popular confusion that audiences often have. And as she starts to read the story, it's, she starts to question her own life. Here's a clip. You didn't sleep again, did you? No. You know me. I never sleep. My ex-husband used to call me a nocturnal animal. What ex-husband? I didn't know you had an ex-husband since when? A couple of years in graduate school. It's weird. I've been thinking about him a lot lately, and then recently he sent me this book that he's written, and it's violent and it's sad and he titled it nocturnal animals and he dedicated it to me did you love him yeah i loved him he was a writer and uh i didn't have faith in him i panicked and i did something horrible to him something unforgivable really you left him i left him i left him in a brutal way so the story there is a, you know, it's, there are three different strands, all of which are intertwined, balanced very, very well. So the first thing is, let's talk about the film technically. I mean, superb cinematography by Seamus McGarvey, who manages to alternate between these worlds, the sterile world of the art scene, the visceral world of the neo-noir novel that has been written, the warmer hues of the flashbacks to the relationship between Susan and Edward. And although these are separate worlds, they bleed into each other with talismanic objects that appear in more than one world, a red sofa, a, a cross around a neck, a sports car. These things start turning, the worlds start infecting each other. When she first, when Susan first opens the manuscript, she gets a paper cut. It draws blood. It's, this is, you know, very significant. And so the story is about the way in which the past and the present and memory and uh, loyalty and loss and devotion and guilt all sort of feed in and off each other. And it is adapted from the book, although it has brought elements to the book that weren't there and it has made it very much... It's like the, that book seen through the 
the prism of a of a Tom Ford lens, although we know it's a Celine glass yes. rather than because as he said, he doesn't his products aren't in it. Um, and a very very uh, evocative uh, and underplayed in the right places. Uh, Abel Korzniowski's score, which kind of harks back to the melodramas, the psychodramas of the forties and fifties, which plays up the Hitchcockian element. And there are times when. It has the kind of, you know, the hyperrealism of Lynch or that kind of grit of the Coens. Um, and every single piece of the jigsaw is placed together in a way that works really well. And it becomes a powerful and engrossing story, a superb, uh, incidentally, Laura Linney as absolutely brilliant sort of cameo as the, the, the mother from hell who says, we all turn into our mothers and sort of is this kind of prophetic figure who says the things you love about him now are the things that you'll hate about him in years to come. And Michael Shannon is the... As the Michael Shannon as Detective Andes, who and he is right. he is actually brilliant. I mean, Aaron Taylor-Johnson as the uh, as the sort of the violent, visceral, feral heart of the neo-noir story. He was unrecognised. I mean, for the first five minutes, I didn't realise it was Aaron Taylor-Johnson. I mean, unrecognisable. Michael Shannon... Sometimes, I mean, if you'll remember, Herzog said that when he worked with Michael Shannon, Shannon came because it was my son, my son, what have you done? And he said that Shannon came into the audition room and sat down and stared at him. And Herzog, who is not scared of anything, was scared of Michael Shannon. Yeah, I can imagine that. And uh, I think Tom Ford was in an interview with you saying, I think it was in the interview with you in which he said that, yeah, that when, he, when he was on set, Shannon was being Andy's the whole time. And, you know, he carried on the smoking, the kind of, and everyone just kind of stayed away from him. Because, but I think his performance is brilliant. I think his performance is really good. And, but here's the interesting thing about the film. If the film has a flaw at all, it is that sometimes the level of design and perfection and preciseness and cleverness sometimes acts acts against it ha- having a human heart and um i've been to see the film i saw it for the london film festival just before i did tom ford and i've seen it again since then and i'm even contemplating going back and seeing it again the second time that i saw it um i felt it was a a, a cl- more sort of a cleverer exercise but also one that was slightly that felt slightly colder and I know some people have reacted to it and feeling that it's that there's something cynical about it. However, I think it is too easy to dismiss what Ford is doing as just surface. I mean, it's absolutely true that if you look at the great cinematic designers, I mean, this was always the, 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 the thing that was thrown at De Palma. Well, it's all style over substance. And in that very interesting documentary recently about Brian De Palma, he says, well, you know, I'm the... I mean, he's never been one not known for blowing his own trumpet. He says, I'm the person who's doing Hitchcock. He says, everybody says, you know, De Palma's but I'm the only person who's, you know, in terms of the attention, detail, attention to style. And certainly there is there is something profoundly cinema. I mean, look at Stanley Kubrick, the obsession to the obsession with detail. I'm not saying for one moment instantly that Tom Ford is Stanley Kubrick, but what I'm saying is that it is possible to dismiss something sometimes because it is so stylized. My feeling about Nocturnal Animals is, firstly, you should go and see it because it's it's a really, really well-made film that's dealing with some interesting and complicated stuff. Secondly, I am slightly removed from it because there are elements of it that feel too precise, too cold, too calculating. But I also understand that if I see the film again, and I may well do, that it may hit me in a different way. Um, because I think there are things in it that do give it a human heart. I mean, I think Amy Adams' performance, and we talked, you talked in that interview about how much Big Eyes had influenced, you know, that's because 
you know, because a lot of the movie is the camera looking at her she, face. She, we see her read, and that's I know. what she does a lot of the time. And it's really hard to look like you're reading. And the other thing that's interesting is the levels of reality, because the story within the story, the novel, the, the West Texas story, becomes very, very real. And I think the the early sequence in which they are run off the road, and I don't want to say more than that. I've seen some reviews have kind of gone further, but you don't. I think it's better that you don't know. Is that's one of the tensest, most grueling things I've seen recently. There's a really, really sort of tough ten minutes in there. Yeah, so, I found that intolerable. It did affect the way I, I. I would like to go back and see it again because it affected me too much. I just wanted that to stop. Yes. Well, I mean, I agree. I found it very, very... And it is interesting that having seen it again since the London Film Festival, I then, it, knowing where it was, I felt differently about it, which is why I think that a, you know, that a third viewing might help him more riches. But it is a really well-made film with a fantastic score, beautifully, uh, beautifully shot. Um, fantastic editing by Joan Sobel, who does a terrific job of, you know, cutting between these different themes. And it is evident that Ford has his fingerprints on everything. There is nothing in the film that looks accidental. Do you think, do you think, I still think that the opening title sequence is a little bit... Yeah, the opening title <laughs> sequence, and so here's the thing, the opening title sequence, the second time round, when you know what the opening title sequence is, and this, the best way of describing it, it's a kind of carnival of fleshy Americana that the first time you see it, you think, what on earth is this? The second time you see it, it kind of makes a little bit more sense. I have to say, I think it's a misstep. It's not, for me, by the time I got to the end of the film, the first time around, I had completely forgotten about that opening sequence. I'd completely forgotten about it. It was when I saw it again, just a couple of weeks ago, I was actually less than a couple of weeks ago. I was then surprised by it. Do you think it might be, because Tom Ford has been accused of filling his two films with beautiful people and that he thought he'd, partly a, he'd start the, his new film with although um, what's you know what's let's be very careful about this what's to define beauty I mean, i'm one, saying what, that's the criticism that's, and that that's maybe why he felt well i think that, that one of the, one of the things um i read an interview with him in which he said that actually the one of the points of that sequence is that they that those the, the people who are on display at the beginning of the film are much happier in themselves and in their flesh than the pinched form of Amy Adams, who is meant to be this kind of zenith of success and yet has got this hollowness behind her. Whether I entirely buy that as a justification, I don't know. But I think it's fascinating that the film that the that the film does leave things unanswered, even though it, it you know it, it's in terms of narrative, it ties things up very beautifully. But it does it. And, and even as I'm saying this, I still have this slight reservation about it. I still have this slight reservation that I'm one re that I'm one removed from it. That it's just slightly too pristine for its own good. But but I'm also aware that that criticism may be. I mean, how fascinating! How fascinating that it's possible. What you're hearing is the sound of somebody trying to figure out exactly what they think of this film. Uh, and and what I would what I would come down at the end and say, it is definitely worth going to see because it is remarkable. Some thoughts on nocturnal animals. Disco Dave has sent in this email. I Disco thought Dave. Was, I thought that was a review. Disco Dave. Tannoy announcer for Greenock Morton FC. Still smiling after the Renfrewshire Derby win last Tuesday. No hard feelings. St Mirren. See you on Hogman A. 3 p.m. kickoff. 
He says, just out of a screening of Nocturnal Animals at the done-up world of Sydney in Glasgow, I'd be surprised if it's not movie of the week. I enjoyed the three stories in one narrative throughout the film as I thought they weaved in and out of each other very well. Amy Adams gives an excellent performance as she goes through various stages of isolation and regret. Jake Gyllenhaal is terrific and I could happily hear Michael Shannon read the dictionary all day. Excellent, understated performance. What do you want to do, Tony? The mise-en-scene most of the time looked like a high-contrast filter on Snapchat, but I'm <laughs> guessing that was to highlight how fake and pretentious Susan's life had become. Well worth a watch if you can. Uh, Greg in Bristol, thought I'd write you to express uh, some thoughts. Strange sensation uh, I was left with today after watching Nocturnal Animals, having only two days previously watched I, Daniel Blake. Uh, While Nocturnal Animals is clearly a breathtaking film, I was simply not in the right frame of mind to adequately relate to these super stylized characters wallowing in their material world when I was still having flashbacks of I, Daniel Blake and that scene at the food bank. Maybe films should come with warnings that suggest safe distances be kept between certain titles at all times. Uh Uh, Charlie Pinnell, I'm a big fan of stories framed within stories, Life of Pi, Adaption, Great uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. So I found the premise of Nocturnal Animals somewhat exciting. However, in this case i felt that whilst the story within was compelling thrilling exciting devastating and dramatic the frame around the story was a little style over substance i do think amy adams is wonderful but susan's storyline just didn't engage me in the way that the shannon gyllenhaal uh, narrative did i was left wondering whether in this case removing the stylish framing would leave behind a short sharp punchy exciting thriller i disagree i think that the reason that i mean it's an interesting question but i just say his final point Sorry, yes. Conclusion, I definitely liked it, but I'm not sure yet just how much. It's very, very, very similar to what I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that the, the, the short, sharp, punchy thriller would not be what it is were it not for the surrounding narrative, were it not for the fact that it is a story that's being read by somebody in this sort of vacuous world and it's bringing stuff back into their life. Uh, it's three twenty-five, but, it, but it's a credit to the to to, to, the, to that part of the film that you that, that you feel like that. And uh, that was Nocturnal Animals. What else is out? Should we do a street cat named Bob? I'm looking forward to. Okay, it. had you because you're a, you're a great book reader. Did had you come across this, the book of Street? I cat had not. Bob? Okay, so uh, me neither. So Street Cat Named Bob, uh, which is a publishing sensation, and. Uh, a uh, story in in this Bob the street cat plays himself. Um, uh, Luke Treadaway is very very likable as a central character who is a uh, uh, a homeless person who is a methadone addict who starts to turn his life around when this cat Bob finds his way into the place that he has now been given to stay. Here's a clip. was you making all the noise. How'd you get... Oh, I see. You're a thief, are you? Stealing all my cornflakes, hmm? Hey, are you friendly? Hmm? Guess that answers that. It's an odd little film. What, what, what that was you... an odd little clip. I know that was actually the only clip we had. I think they had it because you can actually hear you can hear Bob in it. He was the cat. Yes, obviously. I, I realise that. Um, it's an odd film. On the one hand, uh, I mean, you know, it has a certain uh, charm to it because it is 
a story which is an uplifting story about somebody who has completely lost their way, who is in a destitute position, who finds manages to find a way out of it. And as somebody who is both a cat and a dog enthusiast, you know, I mean, I, you know, we, our house is just full of pets, and, and and believe me, when it comes to the pecking order, I'm way down below both the cats, really? at, you know, so far down. And so there are obvious, there are things in it that you know that that work me on that level. I have to say, I think it's it's slightly televisual. It's also it, occasionally it has a kooky air that doesn't quite manage to achieve the. For me, it felt a, the the kookiness can you know starts to trip over into cheesiness occasionally, but its heart is absolutely in the right place. It is a story that reminds us again the fact that it's coming out now, and it looks like it, it's a film which wants to embrace a sort of popular you know a, a big mainstream audience. And coming up to Christmas, particularly when homelessness is a really really big issue, a film in which one of the central characters is a big issue seller who is you know walking around with this cat on his shoulders and it's a, and it's charming and funny it has an awful sense of contrivance about uh, parts of the film i mean there are things about it that absolutely don't ring true there are other parts of it that are sort of you know harrowing and uh, tough particularly the coming off methadone all that sort of stuff in which it's very upfront and very frank about the practical realities of that situation so it's it's an odd film it is a strange mix of, on the one hand, you know, tough but tender. Some bits of it work and are charming. Some bits of it less so, and you know, feel a little bit too much like they're playing to, you know, to our sort of to our our kooky funny bones, which don't quite work. And there are things in it which absolutely don't ring true. But it's good natured, and it is one of those films in which you kind of you give it you 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 sort of. You want to go along with it because its heart is so clearly in the right place, and the story on you know, for which it is telling is so clearly one that, frankly, at times like this, need to be heard more. People, you know, people having a really, really terrible time finding a way out of it through support of both other people and a cat named Bob. But it's a, uh, but it's flawed. Is it a feel-good movie? Yes, and they, I just thought you were going to do some kind of awful. Uh, is it? I'm sure that somebody said it's absolutely per effect or I, feline. I, it's a feline good movie. Oh, that's great! I, I, I knew I'd get there. I, knew I I'd get should there have the absolutely done that one. But it's but, I'm feline good. But you're couching it as though it might be a bit of a Ken Loach film. But no, 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 no. It's absolutely not a Ken. That's what I'm saying. There are elements in it which are you know doing the you know the looking at the sort of brutal. But but no, it's absolutely not a Ken Loach film. It's absolutely not. It is it pr- primarily a feel-good film about somebody coming through and overcoming adversity with the help of a cat who is feline good. Very good. I'm very impressed. It's Thank just you. like instinctive. It is. So um, we I've will come to more of your correspondence in the next half hour. This uh, TV movie of the week, plus these reviews coming up before four. I definitely want to do uh, My Feral Heart. We're going to do The Light Between Oceans and hopefully Girls Lost. TV movie of the week. Here are some recommendations and some thoughts, and then Mark will pick something completely different. Mike Burtwistle. I'm going for La Colina degli Stivali because it has a foreign title. Uh, <laughs> Elena Fernandez Hilario. It's got to be The Keep because of Tangerine Dream soundtrack. Stephen Gillespie. It has to be Videodrome, especially as it's on at an ungodly hour on an obscure channel. 
The Guest is a ton of fun, though. A great genre movie with a brilliant central performance, so watch that as well. Nigel Milner says, I think Mark's going to go for Videodrome with his love for Cronenbergian body horror. Uh, For me, it's The Keep, one of the best horror movies to come out of the 80s. What is our TV movie of the week, please? Uh, Something completely different. I'm going to go for The Lady Vanishes, which is on uh, BBC Two uh, at 11pm on Saturday. This is uh, The Hitchhiker from 1938, uh, based on uh, The Wheel Spins. And uh, oddly enough, because I, I did something about this just recently for the BFI, um, the original po- posters, which I've forgotten, promised comedy chills and chuckles in a Mystery Express. And it is that weird sort of combination of, you know, the mystery thrills, but also these kind of this strange comic element. Um, Margaret Lockwood, there's a train, she's on it, she starts talking to somebody, they disappear. And then everybody then says, you know, there was, there's been no English lady here. What happened? And it's it's... It's just really well put together. And it's one of those films that you just sort of take for granted and you don't watch for a long time and then you go back and you watch it and you go, blimey, this is really, really well made. And it was pretty much the film that uh, convinced Selznick to, to to sign Hitchcock up. So, yeah, really well worth seeing. I mean, even if you've seen it before, I imagine everybody has. Lady Vanishes uh, from 1938, 11 o'clock on Saturday the 5th of November on BBC Two and then presumably on... Player, isn't yes, it? it seems a bit random as to which movies actually make it onto. I beg I, your pardon, I thought it was just all. Some of them do, and some of them don't. Okay. Obviously, is a rights issue thing, unless someone explains it uh, with more coherence. Uh, before we move on, Mel Lambert on an email. Whilst I agree that the accountant is a bit of a narrative mess, oh, uh, Mel is in uh, Burbank, California. By the oh, way, okay. Hello. your listeners might be interested to know that Oscar-winning Mark Mangini served as supervising sound editor and sound designer on the film spent a lot of time creating immersive atmospheres for the soundtrack. He made a special 7.1 channel field, recordings of air, birds, room tones and so on, put them into every scene in the movie wow. to surround the audience. Mark describes this technique as adding a subtle yet effective thickening of the sound and immersing an audience without them thinking about it. So when you go and see this movie, you can sit yourself in a position so you can enjoy the 7.1 channel field recordings. Very, very interesting. Ben Affleck's gun was a Barrett... A uh, 50-caliber military-grade sniper rifle that Mark recorded in the desert with added reverb and delay to add some more distance. Mel knows absolutely everything. <laughs> Although he had microphones an eighth of a mile away to secure that distant sound. Wow. I think Mel Lambert has got a thing there like, Mark Mangini. It's like that thing at the beginning of um, uh, 24-Hour Party People with uh, Andy Serkis standing out in the middle of the field with the, you know, with the Nagra and the microphone. He says, what are you doing? He says, I'm recording silence. Beautiful. And a Nagra would record very good sound. Nagra would record very good sound. Anyway, well, actually, Mel, what you get is the, the noise of the Nagra. Mel Lambert seems to know everything about that uh, whole sound design for the accountant. He does. So I reckon Mel was almost certainly involved in that in some way. <laughs> anyway, thanks for the email. 20 to 4, what else is Well, there? let's do uh, My Feral Heart, which is an interesting film which is being uh, largely self-distributed. Uh, you have to seek it out. What we will do is we will tweet um, a link to a place which tells you where you can, you know, where you can you find it. It is playing in a number of different places, but it tends to be sort of one-off. So, um, uh, this is a story of a young man called Luke, a uh, story of a young man with Down syndrome, played brilliantly, I have to say, by Stephen Brandon, who cares for his mother at the beginning of the film. Uh, his mother then passes away and he finds that he's not allowed to live anymore in his own home. He moves into special needs accommodation where he's looked after by a carer called Eve. Here's a clip. Is it my fault? Is what your fault? That she died. Oi! Don't you ever think that? Look how you cared for her. 
Would it make it better? Luke, it wasn't your fault. You did the best you could to look after her. What happens when you die? I don't know. Depends on what you believe. My nan used to say we come back as animals. I like animals. Me too. I miss her. I like you then. It is an absolutely terrific performance by Stephen Brandon. I mean, he's great. I haven't uh, seen him in a film before. I think this may be his first film, but he is really, really good in it. And what then happens is he wants to get out, um, but initially he's not allowed to go out. Then he befriends a guy who is basically sort of quite posh, but he's d- doing community service. He's working there as a punishment. And uh, he's a hunt saboteur. And then the film gets into this strange area where our central character is out in a field and fox hunting is going on in the background. And he comes across a feral girl played by um, Pixie Lenotte, who is a contortionist, who is work I hadn't come across before. And you wonder, is she real? Is she, um, because in that clip there, we, people say that we come back as animals. Is she somehow connected to the fox because she appears to have been caught in a fox trap? Is she a projection of his imagination? Or is she somebody that he can care for? Because the point is that he was before in a caring role for his mother. And what I think is brilliant about the film, which has this kind of magical realist tone, is that the strangeness is sort of plays out throughout the rest of the drama. And it manages this tone, which on the one hand is very real and very down to earth and very tangible and tactile. But on the other hand, has a sort of, as I said, slightly dreamy sort of magical realist uh, off kilter quality that it manages to sustain I thought, you know, really effectively. There's a fairy tale element in there. There's also an element of Whistle Down the Wind. It's not a million miles away from the world of Chicken, which is a film that I enjoyed very, very much. Um, it's been nominated for uh, a number of awards and uh, understandably so. Uh, there are certain things about it that reminded me of that film, The Eighth Day, from years and years ago, which I really enjoyed. But the the best thing is that it is a film in which... You're not quite sure how it's going to play out for each of its individual characters. It's beautifully directed by uh, Jane Gull. Uh, the writer is Duncan Paveling. I think it's Jane Gull's first feature. And it's shot in this kind of this way which manages to combine, as I said, realism with this sort of strange, dreamy quality in which things are... It's not surreal, but more kind of hyper-real. Uh, Susan Salavati is the uh, cinematographer... And it was, I I didn't know what to expect at all. I knew very little about it. I have to say I found it richly rewarding. And uh, as I said, once again, just such a terrific, uh, complicated and really well-pitched central performance by uh, Stephen Brandon. Obviously a a labour of love in terms of it's a very, very low-budget movie. And there are some parts of it that don't quite work and occasionally there are things that look like... But it doesn't matter because the film itself casts a rather enchanting spell that draws you in. And I said, you'll have to seek it out. We'll tweet on the Wittertainment list a link to says where you can find it. But I, I was very touched by it. Luis Sanchez uh, on an email uh, about My Feral Heart. Last oh, good. month, I was at the East End Film Festival. By chance and curiosity, I went to see a little British indie called My Feral Heart. A London cab driver was raving about this film and how it had brought him to tears. I have to admit, I shed a tear too. Beautifully directed acted and topped with a gorgeous score. Thank you both for making me fall in love with cinema again. Very good, very good, very good. Well, there we go. And I didn't know you had any, so terrific. Uh, it's a quarter to four. Um, 
just a, just a couple on Doctor Strange, only because it's the box office number one. It's uh, it's its first week at number one, and there was so much correspondence, didn't have time to do it earlier. Does it say so much better when you don't have pea brains reading their phones? Um, it actually does, doesn't. Doesn't. No, okay, that, fine. No. Though obviously, uh, in to be general, honest, in general, it's that's not, true. If I would, if I'd been you, I'd have been tempted to just get up and go away. But presumably, but I know, but you can't just do that. You can't just give in. You're into the bullies. Yeah, I'm sorry, but yeah, exactly. Uh, David Brickley, Doctor Strange starts like a bad episode of a bad episode of bad House, <laughs> and ends up like a bad version of Kung Fu Panda, with a disembodied cloak stealing every scene. Still better than Civil War. Though. <laughs> Tony Owen, I saw Doctor Strange, was delighted by it. I laughed and grinned throughout, not at the gags, but at the wonder and absurdity of it all, at the hint of irony that cropped up in every scene and situation, and of course the charisma of Cumberbatch that he can lead us on this charisma crazy of Cumberbatch. I thought it was family-friendly, world-class, light entertainment, and I adored it. Uh, and one more from Peter in Woking. Dear origin story and high-budget sequel, Very I good. am at my wit's Very end. Good. For over a decade, the sci-fi action genre has been held to ransom by Marvel. Every new film from the relentless production line inhabits the same setups of origin story, followed by new bad guy sequel, followed by crossover. Every film inhabits the same dogmatic sandbox world. Every film continues to tread the same dialogue and moments of vague peril that are the tropes of comic books. I'm a fan of Cumberbatch, but his profession last week that Doctor Strange breaks new ground simply isn't true. It just fits in comfortably next to all the others as yet another paint-by-numbers Marvel origin story. Sci-fi is supposed to surprise us, promote weird, wonderful and new ideas, and most of all to make us think. When, if ever, will the big budgets be spent on funding original concepts rather than churning out another brain-dead, narratively dated superhero story from the Marvel machine? Can I say something? Even when I don't agree with the opinions, we have... That's going to sound like Trump, is it? We have the best listeners, we have all the best words, all the best listeners. So you, you need to do the whole hand gesture thing if you Oh, gonna... no, I don't. No, you don't. OK. Anyway, Peter, thank you very much indeed. So uh, Doctor Strange is still uh, the number one movie. 13 minutes to four. What else is new? The Light Between Ocean, uh, uh, Oceans, uh, directly in front of adaptation of M.L. Stebbins' novel, The Light Between Oceans, which is an, an oddly old-fashioned drama, particularly when you sort of compare it to Place Beyond the Pines or Blue Valentine. So the story is Michael Fassbender and Lisa Vikander, an isolated couple, tending to a lighthouse on the aptly named Janus Rock. It's 1919. He's back from the war um, and he's seen too much death and too much trauma and he wants to be alone. So he takes this job tending to this lighthouse in what is a fantastically lonely existence. But just before he goes, he meets Alicia Vikander's character, Isabel, and they fall in love. They send letters to each other and she decide, you know, they decide that they are meant for each other. And he then gets her to come and join him on the island, which is a very sort of brutal and separate existence. Um, but because they are alone and because they are in love, to them, it's a form of Eden. You know, Janus is where the word January comes from. Named after the same god as this island. He's got two faces back to back. One is looking both ways between two ways of seeing things. January looks forward to the new year and back to the old. And this island looks in the direction of two different oceans. You're going to make our baby so clever. 
Now, you see what I mean from that clip about it having an old... Fa- I mean, you know, old-fashioned bordering on... You're going to make our babies so clever. Yeah. Really? However, what then happens is that the film has a tragic turn in that they want to start a family, but they but uh, you know, miscarriages happen, and she becomes almost irreparably heartbroken until one day a rowing boat washes up on the shore that has in it a, a deceased man and a baby. And the question then is... Do they just take the baby appears to have appeared magically as if from a fairy tale, as if from an answer to a prayer? Do they report it, which is what he wants to do? Or do they do what she desperately wants to do, which is to take the child as their own? She says the child has come to us. The child has been sent to us. It is our child. And the rest of the film then plays out as this sort of kind of uh, low-key and yet overall melodrama about the decision that they make and the implications of the decision that they make. The interesting thing about the film is, firstly, I mean, as you'd expect from, you know, the cast, I mean, Rachel Weisz, who is uh, the bereaved Hannah Roenfeld, whose anguish starts to drive a wedge between the two central characters. Michael Fassbender, who plays this very uptight, very repressed character in which all his emotions are telegraphed through the tiniest of gestures. We were talking before about Amy Adams reading the manuscript and the close-ups on her face and the tiniest movement having significance. And Alicia Vikander, who for me is just one of the finest actors of her generation. And yet it has this really sort of knowingly old-fashioned feel to it, not just that it's a period setting, but also that everything about the construction of it, even down to the score that you were, you're hearing there, it all seems to, I think somebody sort of compared it to Nick Sparks, um, and you know I'm a huge fan of Nick Sparks. And it would be very easy to be cynical about this. It would be very easy to be sniffy about this. It would be very easy to uh, to dismiss it. But it got its claws into me and I was gripped by it and I was moved by it and I shed a tear. And it was but you always no, shed no, no, no. I know, I knew, and I knew you were going to say yeah. that. But it, although it is very unlike some of uh, the director's previous films, it is a it is a film which has a a story that, that because again, I mean, it's funny because I was talking about this in relation to Feral Heart. Just that edge of fairy tale, just that edge of something which is somewhere between myth and reality, and the fact that they're you know they're on Janus Rock and all that stuff, it worked, and I was won over by it. And I have to say, at the beginning, I thought, oh, this is going to be quite hard work because it looks very very staid and very very stuffy, and it wasn't. And what the director does is he makes sure that even with the fantastical elements, that what we are absolutely focused on is the relationship between those two central characters and the way in which this kind of quasi-Shakespearean tragedy does or doesn't play out. And I was moved by it. It worked for me. And I even I could hear people in the screening I was in sniffing at it, not sniffing like I was, but going... Snorting. Yeah. And I, but I was of the... I, I, it won me over. Luke Smith in Wolverhampton. Uh, since becoming parents to our daughter, Katie, at the beginning of last year, cinema trips have become a rarity, so we took the opportunity for my birthday to get out and see uh, The Light Between Oceans. With a vague understanding of the source material from my wife and fully aware of Derek C. and France's back catalogue, he's the director, Yes, yes. I wasn't expecting a barrel of laughs. But to borrow, <laughs> to borrow Mark's line... Blimey Charlie. Blimey Charlie. All the best things about the film lie in the opening hour. Subtle and brilliantly thoughtful performances from the central two, beautifully shot, 
With a strong central narrative, unfortunately, subtlety takes a back seat as the film reaches its final third. As such, it loses a lot of the goodwill it's built up as you wade through a series of contrivances. Uh, and then we lose the last paragraph. Thank you very much, uh, Luke Smith. Okay. Mayo at bbc.co.uk. Can I get a couple of reviews in in the last seven minutes? Yes, I have a thought on The Lady Vanishes. Okay. But I will, I can... Okay, well, let me let me do Girls Lost and then you do, do Lady Girls Vanishes. Lost, then we'll do Lady Vanishes. So this is a very strange, again, uh, a bit of, you know, fable and fairy tale in here. It's a Swedish movie, sort of it's a gender-fluid tale, which is kind of a bit like Freaky Friday. Three girls, very close, are bullied at school by misogynist, homophobic boys. They take refuge in a greenhouse where they there is a plant which, when they drink the juice of the plant, they fall asleep and they wake up as boys. So they've transport they've transformed into boys. They then start to get their own back, stand their own ground, discover what life looks like from the other side. But what happens is that each one of the characters reacts differently. One of them, particularly, seems to really enjoy being a boy, and she also then falls in love with another boy, but as a boy. So the film, she has a, a speech about which she talks about that what she wants to do is she feels like she has a zipper on her back and she wants to take off her outer clothing. Actually, she discovers that um, that she aligns more closely with a male identity than with a female identity. So it's dealing with a lot of interesting subjects. It's dealing with transgender issues. It's dealing with uh, gender politics. It's dealing with um, sexual uh, 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 orientation. But it's doing it all in a way which has a sort of... A little bit like Ginger Snaps. Uh, you ever see Ginger Snaps? No. Okay, well, you need to see Ginger Snaps. It's really fabulous. You'd, you'd really, really like it. And a sort of strange, surreal edge to it that is satirical, but also moving and quite half. It's an odd film. It doesn't entirely work, but it has some very interesting things to say about fluid gender identities and exploring the way in which. Uh, those identities can be changed and can be morphed and who somebody really is and how they define themselves and how in the end everybody is whom they def- as whom they define themselves. And I said, not, in, not entirely without some structural flaws, but an interesting movie with, with, you know, with high ambitions. And again, uh, I think I admire the story that it's attempting to tell, although it doesn't always tell it perfectly, it always tells it in a way which is interesting. Uh, you picked uh, The Lady Vanishes yes, as TV movie of the week. Uh, w. David Lichty, who's in Indianapolis, where it probably isn't on television, but maybe it's always on. Yeah, OK, fine. Network. So pleased to hear Mark's rare choice of a genuine classic, <laughs> by which I mean a really old picture, yeah, not right. that his other choices okay, are sure, sure. quality yeah. level. The Lady Vanishes is extremely rewatchable. It was once described as having the best balance of the three things Hitchcock did well, mystery, comedy and romance, and I found that it held up to that standard. Yeah. Very nice programme today. Says oh, w. Thank you. David Lichty. Very kind. Thank you. Very nice email. Can I do You've Been Trumped too? This would seem to be the show to do it. Okay, so um, third part of Anthony Baxter's Trump trilogy um, has been made available free to voters in America on Facebook. And uh, apparently, according to Anthony Baxter, Donald Trump is threatening to sue movie theatres, reporters, or anyone who repeats the allegations in my new film. But no surprise there because he threatened the BBC when they showed You've Been Trumped. Um, the film goes back to basically when he made You've Been Trumped, that was a story about Donald Trump riding roughshod over the people who lived in the area where he wanted to build this golf course in Scotland. Also, the film is about the way that he was allowed to do this, that he was allowed to bulldoze areas of natural beauty and ended up with Michael and Molly Forbes, who became the particular targets of his ire essentially 
attempting to be run out of their houses because they were in the way of his golf course and he didn't like the look of them. Uh, whilst making the golf course, uh, the construction workers ran over the water pipe to their houses and we now go back to them five years later and they still don't have water, despite the fact that uh, we were all told it will all be sorted out and it's not a problem, it'll all be sorted out. So in the interim, Anthony Baxter made a documentary called A Dangerous Game, which was taking the look at golf courses, high-end golf courses, and how they were actually wreaking havoc around the world. And he did in that interview, managed in that film, managed to get an interview with Donald Trump, who said in the interview that uh, Molly uh, Forbes reminded him, uh, him of his mother. We then go back now to find Molly Forbes living five years later without water, This uh, really still being oppressed by all this stuff that's happened around her, trying to get on with her life, trying to get Trump out of her life and facing a future in which he's running for president. And then the rest of the film, because there's obviously no access to Trump, because Trump no longer wants to speak to Anthony Baxter, taking Michael Forbes to America so that he may speak to people who want to vote for Trump and telling him the story of what Trump has done to him and his family and his home. I have to say the film is, it's more of a political intervention than a satisfying movie. Um, You've Been Trumped, I think, was brilliant. It was the best documentary of that year. You made superb use of Local Hero and fantastically had Bill Forsyth saying that um, if he had made up Donald Trump as a fictional uh, villain, nobody would believe him. Um, There is... uh, an awful lot of going back to the old material, reminding us of what happened, using this as a microcosm, looking at other places in which the Trump organisation has been involved, in which tenants have not been treated well. I have to say that for me, it doesn't hang together in the way that, that Baxter's best work does, but it is a film which has been put together to get it out before the uh, election. As I said, it's more of a sort of political intervention even perhaps than a movie. But I hugely admire Anthony Baxter for the fact that he has almost single-handedly flown this particular flag, drawn attention to this situation and given voice to people who were effectively silenced by a huge uh, corporation coming in and riding roughshod over their homes and their lives and specifically their water supply. Uh, so that's you've been Trump too, and this time next week you wouldn't be able to say that. Rules will have changed. Just saying. Don't look at me like that. Uh, now tell me, Mark, what is movie of the week? It's Nocturnal Animals. Interesting. Didn't think you were going to go for that. Normally I can guess, but I didn't get that one. Okay, Nocturnal Animals, starring Amy Adams, who I should say is our guest on next week's programme because she's going to be talking Arrival. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. The podcast will be available very shortly. Thanks for listening. Remember this? I do, yeah. Come and join with the double-deckers Take a ticket for a journey God, it's coming back On a double-decker London bus Yeah, I noticed Do, do Fun and laughter Is what we're after On a double-decker Lumbo-decker bus and It was called Here Come the Double-deckers That's right Michael Audrison plays Brains, Gillian Bailey plays Billy, Bruce Clark plays Sticks, Peter Firth plays Scooper, Brinsley Ford plays Spring, Debbie Russ plays Tiger, Douglas Simmons plays Donut. In Here Come the Double Deckers, a 17-part British children's TV series from 1970 to 1971. And now out on DVD. Thank you very much.
That was a fantastic thing. That was a really, really fantastic thing. What, my thing. voiceover? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. So Aswad came out of that, essentially. And, uh, yeah, loads of brilliant things. Loads of brilliant things. I say Aswad. Which is strange, really. Aswad? Aswad. Why do we say Aswad? No, I... Just sounds like a strange name now you come to mention it. I went, I saw them, I saw them play at the, uh, is it the LSC? Which you have, one of those sort of college venues in London. Mm-hmm. And the support act were um, the Thompson Twins before the Thompson Twins became a rubbish pop band when the Thompson Twins were actually a sort of weird experimental dub band. I think I preferred them as a as a pop band. Doctor, doctor, can't you that see be I'm about awful, us. awful? Um, just on the subject of the accountant, by the way, uh, Tom Barker, this, this came in, didn't have time to include it in the show, Tom Barker in Berlin saw the accountant during the public holiday, which we had here in Germany on Monday. Out of the six of us who saw the film, four strongly disliked it. One thought it was okay, and one thought it was fantastic. As you can imagine, this has caused a lot of debate between my friends since. My opinion is that the film struggles with its two halves. On the one side, an interesting look into the life of a man living with Asperger's and his relationship with Anna Kendrick's character. And on the other, a shoot-em-up loud enough to make your ears bleed. I found that the first half was engaging, but I completely lost interest during the second half of the film. But I quite liked the second half of the film, but it just it was the second half of a different film. It was the runny, jumpy, shooty half. Um, and just a couple of lines on films that we didn't... They weren't in the, in the ten. Yeah. So, but Train to... Busan. Which you love very much. I really enjoyed this. I wasn't on last week, so I didn't review it, but it is this just fantastic um, uh, zombie movie. And James's film of the week. It's at number 18. Um, Steve Vernon in Liverpool. Um, Merry Clock's Gone Back to You Both. In short, I've never cried at the end of a zombie movie. And even shorter, I loved it. Yeah. So anyway... It is. I mean, it's it's really terrific because on the one hand, you know, because the whole point is the train's going from Seoul to Busan, and there's a father who's got a he's a he's a divorced father, and he's got a young daughter who all she wants to do is to go to Busan to see her mother on her birthday. But the father is tied up with this deal, and he's being really difficult. In the end, he she persuades him to go on the train just as this zombie virus outbreak happens. And of course, it's kind of then becomes like a disaster movie that you know you get all these characters who are sort of thumbnail sketches. You get the sisters, you get the evil businessman, you get the, the the, the, the baseball player and the cheerleader and it's a question of which ones will survive to the end run during the course of it they all have to sort of learn life lessons but it's done really well it's got this really visceral quality it's incredibly kinetic quality these scenes of zombies piling up literally sort of piling or like water falling down the train it was it's an absolute non-stop thrill ride and it's triff graham haywood says i watched train to busan a few days ago and thought it was the most entertaining action addition to the on a train genre since <laughs> Snowpiercer. Yes, no, in fact, it's got a it's very, very similar in some of it, particularly that idea of the, the class structure of Snowpiercer. And sadly likely to be just as little seen in the UK. Well, no, Snowpiercer hasn't actually been re- as far as I remember, Snowpiercer never actually got released here. It was all tied up with that recutting nonsense. Craig Nixon, Train to Busan was fantastic, a refreshingly entertaining zombie film, probably my second favourite horror of the year, right behind Nahong Jin's The Wailing. Uh, right, so now, look, I've got DVD of the week. Yes. OK. Well, you're saying very worried Well, now. I'm just wondering about where we explain about getting down with your bad self, which okay. turns out to be rocking on with your bad self. Rocking on with your yes. bad self, OK. But it's should we do DVD of the week now, or would you like some Hughes Corporation? Let's do DVD of the week now, and then we'll hit the Hughes Corporation. OK. OK? All right. Well, so we'll do that. So we'll finish with a little bit of... Uh, 
Yeah, if that's okay. Yeah, I think that's fine. fine. I think you've made a wise a wise decision there. Good. Can okay. I just say? Yes. Well done. Thank you. Made a wise decision. Thank you. First of all, now DVD of the week. Thank you for patronising. It's a pleasure. I can I can do that all the time. I know. Yes, I know. <laughs> Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> Pet birds have become unfashionable in recent years, but once upon a time it was de rigueur to train birds of prey to perform all sorts of amusing tricks. Very good. Only royalty, the landed gentry, and the very wealthiest of families could afford such a decadent hobby. This golden bygone age was portrayed by Ken Loach in his extravagant 1969 drama Kez. One of the choices for this week's DVD of the week. Why are you talking in that voice? So will Mark pick that film? No, then what will he choose? And what are your recommendations? Angus Allen says, That artificial eye collection sounds lovely, but I imagine a little pricey. Hitchcock's Jamaica Inn is notoriously seen as one of his worst, but I've never seen it. And any film based on Du Maurier and starring Maureen... She didn't like it either. ...should at least be considered. Surely. She famously didn't like it. Hitchcock didn't like it because he didn't get on with uh, Lawton. Chris Young says, An eagle for an emperor, a falcon for a lord, a sparrowhawk for a lady, a kestrel for a knave. Martin Harrison, my favourite scene in Kez is the one after Billy has trained the bird to fly at night. When the boy from down the street is boasting about all the tricks his dog can do and Billy says, Yeah, well our kestrel manoeuvres in the dark. I got it. Boom! Yeah, boom. It's a gag. I know. I like that. And Nadim says, Krampus the Reckoning, I think. Though Attack on the Lederhosen Zombies sounds like an underappreciated classic in the making. Is that a thing? Attack of the Lederhosen Zombies? Uh, yes, I, I have to say I haven't caught up with that yet. OK, all right. Anyway, what's our DVD of the week? Well, I am going to go for Kez. I mean, obvious. actually, the whole of this thing was built around that just because... For, partly because I, Daniel Blake, is in cinemas and I thought it was really powerful and really moving... And when you look at Ken Loach's career and you look at Kez and you look at I, Daniel Blake and you go, you know, there is a filmmaking career. There is an extraordinary talent. You know, I know that some people politically disagree with Ken Loach. There are many things that he believes politically that I don't believe. But as a filmmaker, as a filmmaker, he made Kez, he made I, Daniel Blake all those decades apart. And yet both of them have scenes in that would tear your heart out. But not in a zombie way. <laughs> no, 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 not in the way that, that Train to Busan was. Okay, right, a couple of musical treats then to finish with. Yes. Uh, we started with uh, me saying getting down with your bad self and thinking that maybe it was something to do with Rock the Boat by Hughes Corporation. Rock the Boat. It was slightly, slightly wrong. It's actually, anyway, here's, here's actually where it came from. So. Rock the Boat. Rock on with your bad self. It's rock on with your bad self. I thought it's rock, the... rock on with your baby. No. Is he so... Yeah. You want to hear it again? Yeah, sorry, go back, go back. I thought you were saying rock on with your baby. No, rock on with that. Rock, rock on with box. your bad self. Rock the box, rock on with your baby. Rock the box, rock on with your baby. Rock the box, rock on with your baby. Okay. I don't know what it means. It, it doesn't... No, but you were dancing like you did. Yes. Well, the thing is, it doesn't... You know that are we human or are we dancing? I think in your case you were dancing, but not in a human way. Are we not men? We are Devo. There you go. Thank you very much. Just I wondered whether you were waiting for me to, fill, to finish the line. or That was good. It makes me want to wear a flower pot on my head. There you go, talking <laughs> of obscure music again. So, uh, Mark, you were fabulous. Thank you very much indeed. So we're going to finish with uh, Richard Hell. And the Voidoids. And the Voidoids. Uh, I'm a member of the generation. 
You I see, can what he take does, it or leave it each time. But it's very clever, you see, because he says, I'm a member of the blank generation. And then he's second time around, he goes, I'm the... And he leaves this it blank. Is, this is this where is, blankety blank got the blank idea is. from Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Here we go. It speeds up in a minute, don't worry. Does it? Yeah. I wasn't worried. He goes, this is like a pootly bit at the beginning, and then it'll suddenly go into double time. Here we go. Two, three, four. Oh, clever. Say clever. Then he goes. Ooh. Black and orange stray cat sitting on oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. I believe in the blank generation. All together? I believe in the... Straight cat strut. Oh, nice. It is, it's straight cat strut. Well, the other way round, obviously, straight cat strut is blank generation. I had never thought of that. I don't pop it. There. That is absolutely is straight, straight cat struck. Yeah, straight cat struck. Yeah. So we're not suggesting that stray cats got the idea in any way, are we? Well, no, no. Yes, as if you are. <laughs> you can suggest it. I am distancing myself. From I the think that it's coincidental. I think stray cats ripped it off Uptown Funk. Oh, okay, very good. But I think, who knows? They could have just thought of it themselves. Is that all right, Robin? You should play this on your Radio 2 show. Bit of Stray Cat Strike again. You know no one leaves the show empty-handed, Mark, so would you like a blankety-blank checkbook and pen? <laughs> there you go. Terry Wogan with the long microphone. That's the one. The Kenny Everett always in the comedy position. Oh, come on, that was ace. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Good night. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.